The following is a presentation from the MJ Cast, the internet's premier podcast on all things Michael Jackson. You're listening to the MJ Cast by MJ fans or MJ fans. The idea is to uh, innovate, or else why, why am I doing it? When I create my music, I feel like an instrument of nature. You let it create itself, really. I know I do. And I love to entertain. That's that's one of my favorite things. Welcome to the MJ Cast, your source of news and discussion on the King of Pop. Hello, I'm Charles Thompson. Welcome to episode 58 of the MJ Cast, the 2017 Vindication Day special. A few months ago, my friend Ryan Michaels invited me to appear on his podcast, Reason Bound. His show focuses on what people believe, why they believe it, and being able to recognize good and bad arguments. In episode 7 of Reason Bound, I joined Ryan to discuss the importance of preserving the presumption of innocence. Afterwards, he had an idea, to invite me back for a second recording where together we'd take an in-depth look at the child abuse allegations leveled at Michael Jackson throughout the latter half of his career. We'd begin with the Geordie Chandler case in 1993, and run all the way through to the conclusion of his 2005 trial. The show was slated to air on June 13th, the anniversary of Michael Jackson's acquittal. My buddies at the MJ cast were given a sneak preview, and they loved the show so much that they decided they wanted to air it as well. So as a simulcast today, the MJ cast is presenting Reason Bound episode 10, titled Pirates in Neverland, The Michael Jackson Allegations. The MJ cast team hopes that you enjoy the show, and we encourage you to head over to iTunes and check out some more of the Reason Bound podcast. Thank you for listening. You're listening to the Reason Bound Podcast, where it's not what you believe, but why that matters. Now, here's your host, Ryan Michaels. Welcome to the Reason Bound Podcast. I am Ryan Michaels, and I am here again today with award-winning British journalist, Charles Thompson. How are you doing? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm doing great. It's a real pleasure for me to get to speak with you. Um, I really enjoyed doing the last podcast together. And in that podcast, we had talked about one day, um, it happened sooner than I thought it would, uh, but one day doing another podcast together because your area of expertise would be the Michael Jackson trial and kind of going through that area of his life when it came to the allegations, the subsequent trial and so forth. So I'm so happy that um, you're able to record with me today. This would be, um, I think, the first time that you've ever gone through from start to finish, not only the case, but all of the allegations um, in discussing Michael Jackson. Is that correct? I think it is, yeah. I don't recall ever doing it, either in print or spoken word. I think uh, I've focused on particular parts in the past, but I've never gone through chronologically from 93 all the way through to the trial. One of the first things that I wanted to state for anyone listening is that the reason this is so important to me, one of the reasons is because truth is really, 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 really important. And this was the first time in my entire life um, I was very invested. I was in high school at the time when the allegations broke, um, the second round when the trial eventually happened. And I would read what was going on in court every day. I was reading the transcripts every day in my school library. And then I would go home and I would watch the news and they would oftentimes report literally the exact opposite of what happened 
in the trial. And before I had always just assumed the news tells you the truth. You know, they tell you exactly what the truth is. And that was the first time I realized, wow, none of these people know what they're talking about. And I didn't know if it was on purpose or if it was on accident or what. Um, I know you'll be able to give some insight into what was in the media's headspace during the Michael Jackson trial. Once Michael Jackson died, I stopped arguing with people so much about it because, you know, I, part of me is like, you know, he's, he's dead now. So it's not. So there's things that I have forgotten. There's things that I am fuzzy with. Um, to me, I wanted to point out, and I think it's the same for you, but I won't speak for you. You can speak for yourself. But also for anyone listening, even back then, even though I was a fan, what I cared about was the truth. I wanted to know, well, did he do it or did he not do it? Because if he did do it, frankly, that really wouldn't change any of his art to me. I mean, it would it would be a sad thing when it came to him personally, but it wouldn't have changed his art. It wouldn't have changed, you know, people, there has to be this binary of someone's either good or bad. And there are a whole bunch of people, I think, who've done really good things and also really bad things. And what makes someone a good person, what makes someone a bad person is a whole other, you know, podcast one day, perhaps. But when it comes to Michael Jackson, my primary motivation and following it back when I did and learning as much as I could is because I was fascinated discovering that A, the news was completely unreliable when it came to the truth. Even if he had done it, they were being dishonest in their reporting. And B, a lot of the reasons that people would give for why they believed he did it did not make any sense. So again, even if you thought he did it, listening to people's reasons for why he must have done it and and their commentary about the trial and the case you could not connect those dots to well therefore he's guilty well he's he's a freak he's weird he looks weird he went too far with plastic surgery he he lives he has a ferris wheel therefore he's guilty i mean i heard really 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 bizarre arguments so that was really my introduction, I think, to critical thinking and having conversations with people. And my first realization about how the media could not be trusted at all. Um, and I, I guess it's a case-by-case basis. In some cases, you can trust what they report. But in the Jackson case, I can't think of another case, Charlie, tell me if you can, where the totality of the media was so completely biased and dishonest in their coverage. Yeah, I can't personally think of another case which would be comparable. Um, I was doing the same thing you were doing at the time. The transcripts were coming out on like a one-day delay, something like that, because um, they were being prepared by the court reporter, and I think either a collective of fans or somebody like that was was paying for them on a daily basis and publishing them online. And um, I remember during the trial just reading the transcripts and being absolutely horrified because I could see what was going on in the courtroom did not resemble what was being reported on the TV and in the papers. And it was just utterly shocking to me. I mean, Michael had been speaking for years, of course, about burn all tabloids. You know, you can't believe what you read in the papers and that sort of thing. But to see it happening in real time was really quite frightening, um, the scale of the manipulation, the way they would seize on one thing that had been said in the courtroom and make that the story when there were six hours of testimony that day and the rest of it contradicted that point, or when the bit that they'd seized on 
would later be disproved and discredited, but they wouldn't tell you. They'd just tell you the bit that sounded the worst. So, you know, yeah, for me, it was the same as it was for you, really. I was reading these transcripts on a daily basis and just could not believe what I was seeing compared to what was happening on the TV screen and, and in the newspaper pages. Was that your realization like it was for me that, oh, my gosh, I can't depend upon the news media to accurately report? I'd always assumed before that what they said was the truth, you know, because that's kind of what you grow up believing. Um, I mean, I'd been a Michael Jackson fan since I was a kid, so I'd obviously seen little bits and pieces of the distortion that you would get, uh, a bit like with the Martin Bashir interview, where Gavin Arvizo said, uh, Michael told me, if you love me, you'll sleep in the bed. And then Michael slept on the floor. Mm. And then the next day, all the newspapers are saying, Jacko shares bed with Kid. Right. Michael told me, if you love me, you'll sleep in my bed. And they totally leave out the bed about him sleeping on the floor. <laughs> you know, so you'd seen it to that extent. That's a good part, too, for us to make ourselves clear. Or at least I want to make myself clear as to where I'm coming from on this, too. This, like I said, this podcast, uh, from my perspective, is mostly about getting people to understand corrupt thinking versus thinking that is logical and rational. So even if you think he did it, you still have to recognize bad arguments when someone mm -hmm. is making a bad argument for why, again, he had a monkey, therefore he's guilty of child sex abuse. <laughs> okay, that, yeah. even if he's guilty, that is a bad argument and you should not believe it based on that argument. So when I was younger, I used to defend Michael Jackson when it came to that aspect of his life because I'd be like well so what because I because I was a teenager myself I was a young teenager and I thought well if I was at Neverland sure I'd sleep in bed with Michael Jackson I understood it was a big bed and I was thinking yeah what's the big deal I would just sleep in bed with him like who cares like you know I but in my mind it wasn't you know it was an innocent thing in my mind it was well we'd just be going to to sleep on the same bed but now that I've gotten older, <laughs> and now I'm not looking at it from the perspective of being a teenager, but from being an adult, I look at that and I'm like, oh, that, what a bad idea. Like, that is a <laughs> horrible, horrible idea. Like, I can't imagine, both of my best friends have kids, and I can't imagine having, you know, one of my best friends has daughters, uh, my other best friend has a son, and I can't imagine just like one day saying, Hey, what, you know, why don't your, and these are my best friends saying, why, Hey, why don't your kids come over and play? And then at the end of it, we're all just, you know, we're just going to cuddle in bed together. We're just going to go to sleep in the same bed. I mean, I can't imagine, you know, it makes you wonder what was going on in his head. And like I had mentioned before, last time we did a podcast, I never, it wasn't difficult for me to understand why people thought he did it because it's a hard thing to relate to. It's like, why would you as a grown adult feel the need or think it's a good idea? to sleep in bed with kids because it looks bad. It looks really, really bad. And I think we both agree there pretty much. Well, yeah, I'm, I'm not here and I will never be anywhere to defend the idea, the principle of uh, <laughs> sleeping in a bed with somebody else's kids, because it's clearly a very irrational, stupid thing to do for very plentiful reasons, you know, but the point is, and I think that's where a lot of Michael Jackson supporters fall down is that their arguments are just as irrational as the detractors, you know, because that's how we're going to heal the world. We're just going to start sleeping yeah, in bed with kids and exactly. we're going to heal the whole world. <laughs> you know, okay. He was, he grew up in one house with nine kids with one bedroom, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But 
by the time this happened, he lived in a mansion. Yeah, Neverland was a small country. <laughs> yeah, it's like you know, there there is no defense. Particularly, you could maybe you could maybe excuse it as naivety and having never really lived in the real world the first time around, maybe. But to go and do it again after '93 was insane. There's no word for it other than totally and utterly insane. But it is not criminal offence to sleep in a bed with somebody else's kid. It may be a really stupid thing to do. It may be a questionable thing to do. You can see why it would raise eyebrows and why people would be alarmed by it. But nonetheless, it is not a criminal act. And it is not the criminal act with which he was charged. And um, when somebody goes into court on a criminal charge, the evidence must be there to prove that charge for them to be convicted. And the evidence was not there. The evidence was not there to suggest that he was sleeping in a bed with kids, ergo he was molesting them. So Michael's fans' reaction when people criticize him is that they immediately start trying to defend sleeping in a bed with kids. They're going down the wrong path. There's no point trying to defend that because it is indefensible. People will talk about there being a double standard where, well, if it was anyone else, you would think that they were having sex with kids. And I, and to that, I would say, if it was anyone else in terms of what, because not necessarily, if all I know is that there is someone sleeping in bed with kids, if that's the only information I have, and I know in one case, it's Michael Jackson, in one case, it's someone else, I probably would have stronger suspicions of someone else, but that's because the context of Michael Jackson's life, it's not difficult for me to believe that he was so far outside the realm of reality that he didn't, I think, you know, I think he had issues clearly. And I don't think that he understood. I think he wanted to see himself as a kid so bad. Mm -hmm. And I think he truly was miserable at times if he wasn't around kids. And I think that he, he, his judgment was so poor. I mean, whether it was dangling his baby over the balcony or what, that, people talk about there being a double standard. Well, sometimes there's a double standard because there's two things. I mean, who can you really compare someone else to Michael Jackson? Can you who can you compare someone else's mindset to his? I mean, some people sleep in bed with children because they have a sexual interest in those kids. Some people sleep in bed with children because it's their own kids, it's their whatever. Some people or, or one person <laughs> slept in bed with kids <laughs> for reasons that we're still trying to figure out, but that there are no signs and no evidence that anything sexual was happening at the same time. Any thoughts on that? Because that's always been my take when it comes to the double standard suggestion. Yeah, I mean, the the idea of a double standard is plainly lunacy. You know, it's like you can't hold Burt up the road to the same standards as Michael Jackson because Burt up the road hasn't been living in an alternate reality for the last 30 years of his life. <laughs> you know, Michael <laughs> Michael Jackson's concept of the world is not the same as anybody else's concept of the world. He knew nothing outside of the gates of Neverland, as, as far as we can exactly. tell. Exactly. I mean, from the age of 11, he was globally famous. He was unable to relate to other kids apart from his brothers, um, who didn't always treat him the way he wanted them to. They were a bit older than him. In most cases, they were interested in other stuff. You know, so he really lived quite an isolated life. There's a story in one of the books that I read. I think it might have been his brother Jermaine's book about how Michael, as a kid, uh, when he got all his money, 
he would buy a bunch of sweets. He would get an allowance from his money that he was earning at Motown. And when he got his allowance, he goes straight down to the sweet shop and just buy tons and tons of candy and stuff. And then he'd set up a sweet shop in the street. And instead of charging, he would just give it all away. So it was a sweet shop, except you didn't have to pay for anything. It was just his way of trying to hang out with other kids was that he would try to bribe them, just try to, to buy them sweets, you know, because so he was so isolated. Yeah, totally isolated. He told stories himself of being in the studio at Motown and looking out of the window because there was a, a softball pitch or something off, opposite the studio and, and crying because he wanted to go and play and he had to work. And so when he would get his downtime, he would go and buy all these sweets and give them away to kids to try and make friends. It was just a, a, a sad existence, you know. And there's other issues at play there as well, which is not just the childhood thing, but you could look at it, for instance, the, the way that business was foisted upon him as a child. He was uh, working. He was signing contracts. He was getting paychecks at an age where most kids don't even get their pocket money yet. And then you see when he gets older, he sort of um, retreats into this fantasy world and starts farming all the business decisions out to other people, which often is catastrophic. There's also the um, the disciplinarian side of it with Joe Jackson, whereby he was terrified and, and he would have to do everything his father said because he was frightened of getting beaten. And then in his adult life, you see this incredibly defiant side emerge where the moment somebody tells him he has to do something, he doesn't want to do it. So he will sign a contract. And then the minute someone tries to force him to abide by that contract, he runs away, then he gets sued. Or the minute people start saying, stop sharing your bed with kids, he's all over the TV saying, I'm going to keep sharing my bed with kids. You know, like whatever you tell me to do, I'm going to do the opposite because I don't have to do what you tell me to do. That was kind of the way he lived his life for the last sort of 25 years. I remember during that 60 Minutes interview around the time of the trial, Ed Bradley was trying, and, and Diane Sawyer prior had said in the interview with um, Lisa Marie Presley, both of them had said some version of, this is the sticking point for a lot of people. Are you going to keep doing this? Or are you going to stop? I mean, this is what people want. I remember Diane Sawyer had made some comment about, I think this is what a lot of people want to know. Are you going to continue doing the sleeping in bed with kids? And Michael mm -hmm. would always say his attitude was like, you know, you know what? You're the sick one. You know, I'm not doing anything yeah. wrong. You're the one whose <laughs> mind's perverted. And he was yeah. extremely defiant in that way. He's like, we're cuddling. We're having cookies. What's the matter with you? You're just, you're, you know, you're just bitter. Like, you know, you don't know what it's like to experience true love and true joy. Well, Michael, unfortunately, experienced what it was like when he let pirates into Neverland. Mm -hmm. Could you go back now and give me your earliest memories of him, what you thought of him? When the allegations broke, how much did you understand of that at your young age? Because you're a couple years younger than even I am. Um, well, growing up, I really had no interest in pop culture. I know that sounds weird, but um, I was one of the only kids in my friendship circle who didn't have like satellite TV or cable TV. Mm. Uh, I was one of the last kids I knew to get internet in the house. Um, so I kind of didn't really have much exposure to music and pop culture as a kid and i remember what happened was i went to my friend's house for dinner once after school and he put a vcr in the player you know the tape player 
And it was a, um, a compilation that he'd recorded from TV or something of Michael Jackson music videos from a music channel. And um, it was like a light bulb going on. I mean, I really had no exposure to, you know, I was aware of pop music at the time and whatever, but I really was not interested in it. Uh, there was a weekly show in the UK called Top of the Pops, which was a half hour music show where they would play the top 10 or whatever. But other than that, I really had no exposure. What year is and, this about? Um, this would be about 1995. I would be about seven years old. Okay. Um, and anyway, he puts this tape in and it's uh, a compilation of Michael Jackson music videos. So I'm watching the bad video, the way you make me feel, thriller, smooth criminal, remember the time. And I just remember being absolutely um like transfixed by it i'd never seen anything like it and as a kid you're into like superheroes i used to love films i used to love superman and teenage mutant ninja turtles over the cold and all that stuff and um michael jackson was like a musical superhero in a, in a way because you're watching these videos one after the other and in one of them he's turning into a werewolf and in another one he's a gangster and in another one he uh disappears into a pile of sand and then comes back as an egyptian and you know it was just this incredible in one of them he turns into a panther it's and even you know, his natural incredible even his natural power superman has ice breath and can fly i mean the way michael jackson moved you know the illusionary dancing and everything i mean we had no oh, yeah. other context for that it was only my, you know there was no so you think you can dance and blah 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 it was the only person that could move like michael jackson at that time that any of us knew about was michael jackson so i definitely that's yeah. a great analogy that you made and there's, to be honest, there is nobody who can dance like Michael Jackson. I say that today. Still, no, there's not. You know, you can watch impersonator after impersonator, whether they be professional Michael Jackson impersonators or sort of uh, Michael Jackson impersonators in denial, like Justin Timberlake. But none of them can. <laughs> that, that's an <laughs> argument we'll have another uh, time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> none of them can um, can remotely compare. I mean, the way he moved was phenomenal. I remember. That day, when he put the videos on, they played the uh, the way you make me feel video. And there's a moment in that video where he's standing still, and then it looks like he's he just looks like he's floating, and his feet sort of start moving around, and the rest of his body is just staying still. It was it was like a magic trick. And um, I know I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, that was my first exposure to Michael Jackson, really. And um, I didn't start learning anything about him beyond the music until i was a teenager uh we got internet in the house for the first time in about 2001 and uh started reading about him online and also started checking books out of the library that sort of thing um and so then as a as a young teenager was when i started learning about the uh the 93 allegations and all that kind of stuff growing up i just kind of assumed because again naivety you just kind of assume just like i assumed that well the media wouldn't lie to me you just assume that certain authority figures in your own family aren't going to lie to you and you just assume they know what they're talking about turns out boy was that wrong in about every way imaginable um but i was interested i was intrigued because it didn't make sense that if everyone was so sure that he had done this uh, he was walking around free, and every time I saw him, he was with a parade of children. So I was kind of going, hmm, what exactly is going on here? So do you want to kind of tell us how, in Michael Jackson's life, 
what happened in 1993 came to be. He was on tour, I believe, and his tour bus broke down. Is that correct? I think it was his car. I think his car broke down. It was before he went on tour. Um, it was 1992. So it was a year after the Dangerous album had come out, give or take. And it was shortly before the tour was about to go ahead, I think. Um, it was May 92. His car breaks down close to a business which is called Rent-A-Wreck, uh, which is a, a car hire business. And so they go over to the car hire business nearby and they say, look, Michael Jackson's car has broken down. Can you do us a massive favor? We need to hire a car right now. And um, the business is owned by a man called Dave Schwartz. And Dave Schwartz is married to uh, a lady called June Chandler who's the mother of a boy called Geordie Chandler. And Geordie Chandler is a huge Michael Jackson fan. How so old is Geordie at this point? He's about 11, I think. So Schwartz gets on the phone and says, get Geordie down here right now. Michael Jackson is sitting in my store. And uh, they bring Geordie down, and two of them have a conversation. And Michael says... You know, thanks a million. You've done me a big favor. And he gives Geordie and the family his phone number and says, why don't you call me? You could maybe come to Neverland sometime, something to that effect. And then over a period of time, the pair develop a friendship, as Michael did with various kids over the years. Michael and Geordie developed the friendship. Yeah, Michael and Geordie, although um, Geordie always comes as a package, really, with uh, his mother and his sister. Um, they go to stay at Neverland, then Michael comes to stay at their house. They start uh, traveling with him on tour. They go with him to award ceremonies, all that kind of stuff. June Chandler's ex-husband and Geordie Chandler's father is a man called Evan. He's a dentist, not a very good dentist, according to the uh, board that monitors dentists in the area. They've uh, you know, criticized his work in the past. He almost got struck off. He wants to be a screenwriter, but it's not going very well for him. And at the time, he owes um, June Chandler about $70,000 in child support. And he's been somewhat of an absent father. And they're not living together at this point? No, they're not living together. She's she's left him, and she's now with Dave Schwartz. Um, she's married to Dave Schwartz. I believe they're married. Certainly, he's referred to frequently in the press reports as the stepfather. Evan Chandler has been somewhat of an absent father, not paying his child support, not seeing Geordie as often as he should. And all of a sudden, Geordie's best friends with Michael Jackson, and now Evan Chandler wants to be involved. And he's inviting Geordie over to his house and saying, why don't you bring Michael with you, etc. Why don't I come to Neverland with you? Um, the friendship continues for a while. Michael's staying at Geordie's house. Geordie's staying at Michael's house, always with June and the sister in tow. And... Um, Evan Chandler, according to uh, tape-recorded conversations, starts to feel that Michael may be putting the moves on June. He feels that Michael Jackson is trying to steal his family away from him, the family that he wanted nothing to do with until Michael Jackson was on the scene anyway. After he's inserted his way back into the boy's life to get access to Michael Jackson, he starts asking him for favors. Why don't you build a wing on the side of my house so you can come and stay with us more often? Could you get me a script writing deal, etc.? Now, uh, the wing, just to be clear, the wing on the side of Evan's house where Evan was staying since he was not living yeah. with Jordy. Okay. Yeah, he wants, Michael, <laughs> he wants Michael to build a wing 
on the side of his house so that Michael can come stay more often, which is just so bizarre. This is something I want to ask you about because my memory is a bit foggy on this, but I read J. Randy Terabarelli's book, The Magic, The Madness, The Whole Story. Mm -hmm. At one point, before the wing was suggested, if I'm remembering this correctly, Evan is quoted in the book as having a conversation with Michael where he says something to the effect of, are you fucking my kid? Because he seems to be under the impression that there might be some kind of relationship going on. And then, again, according to the book, which I think might have been taken from JRT's conversation with only Evan, I'm not sure where he got this side of the story <laughs> from, but Michael gave kind of like an embarrassed like laugh or reaction or no, of course, or something like that. And then... Evan seems totally uninterested, kind of whether or not it's happening. And he suggests at that point that, well, why don't shit, why don't you build a wing onto the house? And it seems like Evan has been under the impression that Michael and Jordy are likely having some kind of relationship, but he doesn't seem to care, is the idea that I got from reading JRT's book. Can you speak to any of that? or? Yeah, so J. Randy Taraborelli sat down with uh, Evan for a long interview around the time of the allegations, sort of around the time of the settlement, I suppose. Mm. And, um, yeah, so all that stuff in the book comes only from Evan, and it comes after Evan has brought the allegations against Michael. Evan is not a reliable witness. We know this because he's caught in various um, lies and, uh, you know, odd scenarios throughout the whole process. So according to Evan, he has a conversation with Michael where he says, are you fucking my son? But we only have Evan's word for that. But that's what's um, so, so weird. It's not because, something I would... No, for sure. Because, so yeah, that's only Evan's word. But what's so strange then is he's admitting that he's got... Now, again, we know he's an unreliable witness, like you said, but he's admitting, regardless of his level of honesty, what he's basically saying here is, I thought that Michael Jackson was having a se was very likely or possibly having a sexual relationship with my son. I asked him once said no. And then I'm like, oh, well, you know, and then business as usual. Then I suggest he builds a wing onto my house so he can come stay even more. So yeah. what a terrifying admission from this guy. I mean, it really speaks to his character. It's indicative of the generally nonsensical nature of the story that Evan told. And what you have is so in, in spring 93, about a year after Michael meets Geordie, Evan Chandler starts making these allegations, initially starts making these allegations. And the stepdad, Dave Schwartz, is very skeptical as to Evan's motives. He thinks it's all about money. So he starts tape recording Evan secretly during their phone conversations. And then what you have is this incredible record of these phone conversations that are going on after the point where Evan has already accused Michael of molesting his son. And okay, in so one of these... Real quick, just to set the, I'm definitely following you, but this can be a confusing thing for some people who aren't as familiar with it. So yeah, Evan Chandler at one point decides that he's going to make accusations that Michael Jackson is molesting his son, Jordy. Okay. Yes. Then he starts having conversations with Dave Schwartz, who is now married to Jordy's mother, or who, who is referred to as the stepfather. Jordy's stepfather. Yeah. And Schwartz is very skeptical of Evan's motivation, so he starts recording the phone conversations. Yes, exactly. Okay. So, so before we get in, one, sorry, one more thing. Yeah. 
Before we get into the phone conversations, I want to touch on what Michael's relationship was with Jordy that led up to Evan deciding that he was going to make these allegations and thinking in his mind that they might at least in part stick. So you had mentioned earlier that Jordy was kind of a package deal with his sister and stuff, but at one point, for quite a while, it just became Michael and Jordy, didn't it? Well, it, it was. I don't think it was ever the case that Geordie was at Neverland without his family. I think he always travelled there with his family, and then Michael would travel to the family home. Uh, so he would travel to either June's house or to Evan's house, um, and they would often stay in a room together. Okay, um, this, and this is where I want to be honest about my own feelings about the case, because I'm sure as we're, as, as we're heading into 2003, I am, I am very convinced that Michael deserved to be vindicated and that whole trial was absolute bogus. But right now we're at 93. The, the thing that bothers me about all of this most is what was going on in 1993, because watching Michael and Jordy together, what I've read... It was so unlike any relationship you see an adult and a kid have, whether it's friends or family or whatever. And so Jordy would go to Neverland. They'd sleep in the same... Jordy was the kid who was sleeping in the same bed with Michael, right? At Neverland? I believe so, yeah. The thing that bothers me more... I mean, that even, like we talked about earlier, you could even make the case that he was so naive he didn't understand his big bed, whatever. The thing that is difficult for me to wrap my mind around is how when Michael would go stay with Jordy at, at their house that everyone is okay with the fact that Michael and Jordy are sleeping in Jordy's bed and this is going on for like a year if I remember correctly that makes me I don't think that was going on for a year okay tell I me think... tell me what the deal was with with that I'm not sure on the time scale but I think the period from when they very first met to when the allegations were first made was about a year. Okay. So it follows that it would have been less than a year that that had been going on. I think it was a month. I think according to Randy Tarabrelli's book, it was like a month. And he tells the story. It's a strange story, really. So Michael's staying there with Geordie, and they're sharing a room. And then Michael is like absolutely delighted because while he's staying there, he's doing all the washing and ironing. And he's going, I've never done washing an eye <laughs> right. before. You know, and he's just over the moon because he's living in a normal house, having a fairly normal existence, doing normal household chores. And he just seems to be like the happiest he's ever been in his life, which is so peculiar, really. And it just tells you what a kind of a strange life he's led. But um, yeah, so while they're there, he's staying in Geordie's room. And as you say, everybody seems totally comfortable with it which i guess is um speaks to the relationship that michael had with the family and you know i mean what parent really what parent if you had any suspicion at all that something was going on you wouldn't let that happen you know you just would not let that happen as a responsible parent so i just i have to assume that they were comfortable enough with him and that they knew him well enough to think that it was not a problem I just, yeah, I suppose so. I mean, that's just, that's, to me, that's the weirdest thing that he would, when he would stay there, that him and Jordy were in the same room. And do we know for sure if it was the same bed or what was going on? 
Well, I don't think we know anything for sure, to be honest. I mean, we only have, um, for most of this, Evan's side of the story. We have Geordie's deposition, but that is highly questionable for reasons we'll come to. So, no, I don't think we know anything for sure. I don't even think we could say for sure that Michael and Geordie were sharing a room, to be honest. We only know that through the testimony of people whose, whose testimony would later be thrown into serious doubt. Okay, gotcha. So what was it that eventually spurred Evan into making these allegations that Michael was committing abuse? Well, we get an indication from these tape-recorded conversations. Um, he's These recorded conversations come after he started accusing Michael of possibly molesting his son. But then when you read the transcripts, he keeps alluding to the fact that he has no idea whether his own allegations are true or not, and he keeps giving other reasons for why he's pissed off with Michael. So at one point, Schwartz asks him, so do you think that Michael's fucking him? And Chandler says, I don't know, I have no idea. And then uh, he starts complaining that Michael Jackson has stopped telephoning him, which of course is the, the first thing you'd be concerned about if you thought Michael Jackson was molesting your son. Right. He says, we were friends. I liked him. I respected him and everything else for what he is, you know? There right. was no reason why he had to stop calling me. He could have called me. <laughs> so then he starts complaining that uh, Michael has broken up his family. And he says uh, he's talking about June um, and how June has betrayed him by running off with Michael. And he's talking about his legal team. He says, my instructions were to kill and destroy. I mean, by killing and destroying, I'm going to torture them, Dave because that's what June has done to me. She's tortured me. Um, he starts talking about it as though it's an extortion attempt. He says, uh, I sat in the room one day and I talked to Michael and I told him exactly what I want out of this whole relationship. Then he says, uh, everything is going according to a certain plan that isn't just mine. I picked the nastiest son of a bitch I could find. And all he wants to do is get this out into the public as fast as he can, as big as he can, and humiliate as many people as he can. Talking about it a lawyer. It could be a massacre. Talking about his uh, his lawyer, Barry Rothman. Uh, he says, it could be a massacre if I don't get what I want. He's nasty, he's mean, he's smart, and he's hungry for publicity. Then he says, Michael's career will be over. And Dave Schwartz says, and does that help Geordie? And Chandler says, that's irrelevant to me. Yeah, I mean, that's pretty telling. Yeah. Um, so the other stuff that's going on at the same time, which is quite important, is that as soon as Michael's team gets wind that Evan Chandler is making these allegations, uh, which comes to Michael basically through Evan trying to blackmail him, saying, if you don't get me a script writing deal, I'm going to accuse you of molesting my son. Uh, Michael has his private investigator, who's called Anthony Pellicano, go and interview Geordie. And Geordie denies all the allegations and says, my dad just wants money. It all follows from there, really. So it starts off with Evan. See, this is a common misconception about the case is that Geordie Chandler accused Michael Jackson of molesting him. That's really not the way it happened. Evan Chandler accused Michael Jackson of molesting his son, and uh, Geordie denied it. And then the circumstances under which Geordie changed his mind and changed his story were highly suspicious. And so at what point is Geordie taken to the cops? 
and is made to testify or what happens to get the police involved? Okay, so what happens is um, Evan accuses Michael of possibly molesting Geordie. Um, and who does he accuse this to? Does he call up the police and say? He hires a lawyer and he accuses Michael to Michael, basically, and to June and says, it originally says, if Michael doesn't get me a script writing deal, I'm going to accuse him of molesting my son. And then it all flows from there. And the authorities don't get involved until a short while later. So He literally is- said that if Michael does not get him a script writing deal, he's going to accuse him of molesting his son. That is certainly the account of uh, Michael Jackson's team who were all involved in the case at an early stage. Wow. Um, because George, uh, Evan was trying to uh, negotiate with them. So the lawyers were involved and Pelicano was involved. And Geordie is denying everything, which is a real problem for Evan. So Evan starts trying to wrestle custody of Geordie away from June. Oh, right, right, Um, right. So what happens is Evan negotiates that Jordan can come and stay with him for a week. Uh, And that's in July 1993. Geordie goes there for a week and never comes home. While Geordie is in Evan's custody, he continues to deny the allegations for about a month. And then Evan, who is a dentist, as I mentioned earlier, takes his son into his surgery, into his dental surgery for a dental procedure and administers a drug. And the drug is called sodium amatol. And it was known for many years wrongly as a truth serum. People thought that if you gave somebody sodium amatol, and uh, ask them a question, they would tell you the truth. What it actually does, it makes you highly suggestible. It's been implicated in lots of sort of uh, phony UFO abduction cases and that sort of thing. Really? Yeah, it's, uh, it's it makes you highly suggestible, the drugs. So if you put somebody under and start asking them questions about where you were abducted by UFO, they, in many cases, do wake up believing they were abducted by UFO. Um, and, you know, in many cases, well-meaning people would administer this drug in the honest belief that it was a truth serum, but it was not. <laughs> uh, so it was an, what it was, it was an old version of, sort of an anesthetic. They used to use it as an anesthetic um, and before they switched over to the more modern methods. And it was at the time that Evan administered this drug, it was highly unusual to use it for a dental procedure. And what was he doing? Extracting teeth? I don't know if we know what the procedure was, but he took Geordie into his dental surgery for a procedure. It sounds like a far-fetched story, but it's actually confirmed by Evan himself in a, a TV interview at the time in 1994. He says in the TV interview, I gave Geordie the drug. This is when it's being touted as a truth serum. He says, I gave Geordie the drug, and then he just told me everything. Um, and it was also confirmed by the uh, the anaesthetist who was present, who was then asked to leave the room after the uh, the substance had been applied. Um, so Geordie goes into the room denying that he's been molested, and he comes out of the room now saying that he has been molested. Um, he gives an interview to the Department for Children and Family Services. That's in about August of 1993, and that is when the story leaks so what um chandler does so june chandler then tries to get custody back of geordie goes to court and so evan takes geordie to a child psychologist who geordie tells the story to 
under that circumstance, the psychologist is legally obliged to inform the authorities of the allegation that's been made. So once the authorities have been uh, informed, Evan Chandler uses the uh, the fact that an allegation has been made to the police as a reason to uh, withhold custody from June, saying that she is responsible. It was under her watch that this all occurred. Um, and so he maintains custody of Jordan throughout the rest of the proceedings. All right. So now up to this point, everything has been done kind of behind closed doors. Everything that's unfolded so far, is that correct? Yes. Okay, and so now the press gets wind of it, and how does that happen? What happens is um, the interview that Geordie gave to the Department for Children and Family Services is leaked. Um, the fact that he's given an interview is leaked to a reporter called Don Ray, um, who sells the story to a local news outlet, and it all, uh, from there, it's like a... He described it as being like a runaway freight train. Um, it just went into overdrive within about 24 hours. It was all over cable news and it was on the front of every British newspaper. Can you speak to what the... Well, of course, you didn't really, I guess, know about this until after the settlement and everything, because you didn't, I guess, come across Michael Jackson until about 95. But yeah. looking back, I'm sure you have knowledge now of how did people react in Britain? How How was the press situation there? Did he have the public support or not? Um, I've spoken to friends who were around at the time, and um, the feeling generally was that this was quite fishy. The whole story was phony. Hmm. The way my friend Sam described it, actually, was he said that there was good journalism still in some areas in 1993 and four which didn't seem to exist by the time the second case came around. So there were some sceptical voices. There were some people that were doing proper investigation that were drawing negative inferences from certain inconsistencies in the story and that kind of thing. But for the most part, the, it was the American, the American uh, tabloid press, both on TV and in print, which just took this story and uh, ran with it and basically took over the prosecution's case. I should mention, which I forgot to mention earlier, that in August, so um, after uh, he's wrestled custody from June and he has extracted Geordie's um, damning changed story. You're talking about Evan, the father. Evan, yeah. He, uh, his lawyer, Barry Rothman, goes to Jackson's team and tries to negotiate with them uh, demands $20 million in five installments and says, if we get what we're asking for, these allegations will never become public. And Michael refuses to pay. So that kind of gives you an insight into Michael Jackson's position here. You know, if you were guilty and you have somebody saying, we'll cover this up if you give us $20 million, and if you've got the amount of money that Michael's got, then you would think that he would pay and I've always thought the fact that he refused to pay was actually quite a strong argument in his favor, because had it not been for his refusal to pay, this would never have gone public. And that's why people when you know, these people would be on around the time of the trial, people on court TV and Nancy Grace's horrific show and all this stuff, they'd be talking about how, oh, he fits the profile of a pedophile and all this stuff. And I'd think, no, I don't think so. Um, I don't know <laughs> what pedophile goes on television on a special in front of tens of millions of people and advertises sleeping in bed with kids like it's just the most natural thing in the world. I mean, it's like something he was proud of and he couldn't wait to tell everybody. 
you know, (laughs) (laughs) like if he was really committing sex abuse, um, advertising it on an international documentary was probably not the smartest move to make. But anyway, at what point now? So Ren 93, Michael's not going to settle. And so now does the district attorney, Tom Snedden, enter into the picture at this point or what? Yeah. So what happens is um, June, even after Geordie changes his story, June remains skeptical. Um, she says she doesn't believe it. And she only changes her mind and turns on Michael, uh, according to her own lawyer, um, when the police tell her that Michael Jackson fits the profile of a pedophile, which is not true. Um, and also they start threatening that she could be prosecuted for parental neglect because it was on her watch that it all allegedly happened. Uh, so what happens is Evan Chandler does two things simultaneously. He takes the kid, he takes Geordie to the psychologist. The psychologist is then duty-bound legally to inform the police. And at the same time, Evan Chandler files a civil suit asking for money from Michael Jackson because Michael has refused to pay him. So he decides that he's going to get the money through a lawsuit. This all becomes public in August and the police start investigating. Uh, They raid Neverland. Michael at this point is out on tour. He's on the sort of the final leg of the dangerous tour uh, in late 1993. So he's absent, totally removed. Okay, so he was on tour when when they raided Neverland and everything. Yeah, so he was just about to go on tour when he met Geordie. Uh, then later that year, he went on tour. And the Dangerous Tour happened in two legs, one leg in 92, one in 93. He's hanging out with Geordie, you know, the period where they're staying at each other's houses and stuff. That's between the first and second leg of the Dangerous Tour. Michael wants Geordie to go on the second leg of the tour with him. Um, but because of Evan now threatening to make these accusations, Geordie doesn't go. While Michael is on tour is when this all breaks, when the, the lawyers and Michael refuse to pay Evan the money he wants, and uh, Evan takes the boy to the psychologist, and it all flows from there. Michael is on the other side of the world. He's on, I think, the South American leg of the tour. He's in Chile and all around those kind of areas, um, Mexico. And... Um, so what happens is Michael is absent. His lawyers are periodically putting out press statements. But for the most part, he is totally removed from the situation. He never gives interviews anyway. He's totally absent. And so the media is filling the void by going off and they start waving checkbooks around. Anybody that used to work for Michael Jackson who thinks that they want to make a buck or two can now come forward and sell a story. Various people do. Okay, so basically Michael isn't talking. Is there a gag order on him? There's no gag order because there's no trial. Um, So what happens is the prosecutor tries to collect evidence that Michael has committed a crime. Uh, So they raid Neverland. Eventually, when Michael returns from his tour, they serve a warrant on him, which is uh, a search warrant, which allows them to view and photograph his naked body including his genitals. And why did they do that? Jordan Chandler claims that he can describe accurately Michael Jackson's genitals, but when they do the photo shoot and compare what they find with what Jordan Chandler described, it doesn't match. That was also Uh, confirmed in the autopsy as well. Yes, and um, Jordy is Jewish. It's important to keep in mind at this point, and so is Evan, because, and Evan's real name is Evan Charmatz. He changed it to Chandler. 
uh, a later date. So he describes Michael Jackson as being circumcised, which is perhaps natural for a child who has only ever seen circumcised penises. But when they search Michael Jackson's body, they discover that he is not circumcised, which throws doubt on his story. So what you've got at this point, you've got a kid who's changed his story, said Michael Jackson didn't molest him, then said that he did. Then when he says that he did, it's only under the influence of a drug and he gets the description of the genitals wrong. Uh, They find nothing from the search of Michael's home. So uh, meanwhile, there's all this evidence that it's possibly an extortion attempt. So Tom Snedden does something which is pretty much unprecedented. Tom Snedden is the local district attorney for the the county where Michael lives, Santa Barbara. Uh, He convenes two separate grand juries in separate locations, one locally and one in Los Angeles. And he asks them both to consider the case at the same time. And unfortunately for Snedden, both grand juries feel that the evidence is so slight that they refuse to hand down an indictment, which is significant because there's an old saying in American legal circles that a grand jury will indict a ham sandwich. Yeah, you can indict a ham sandwich, bada bing, bada Exactly. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't you really don't have to have much evidence at all to get an indictment from a grand jury. So the fact that two grand juries um, indict, uh, fail to indict is very significant. So the legal case in that sense stalls, but the civil suit where Evan Chandler is suing Michael is continuing quite rapidly. How is it continuing? Okay, so what happens is um, the case enters the legal system and then it just goes through the usual processes. So the judge who's presiding over the case starts ordering depositions. So all of the witnesses who are involved in the case have to be deposed. They have to be questioned under oath uh, so that a version of their story is on record for use in the case. So Michael's lawyers are um, going back to court quite regularly and are saying this is unfair. This is a breach of Michael's First Amendment right to a fair trial because uh, in law in America, every citizen has the right to a fair trial if they're accused of a crime. That's a criminal trial. So if you hold a civil case before you hold the criminal case, what you do is you prejudice the defendant in the criminal case because the prosecutors can come and have a front row seat for the uh, the civil case, and then they can tailor their case to circumvent the evidence that you've presented in your defense. Which we would end up seeing in 2003, but we'll get to that. Exactly, yes. So for just for argument's sake, if you have an alibi and you raise the alibi as a defense in the civil case, in the criminal case, they can come back and change all the dates so that your alibi is no longer valid that sort of thing. So Michael's lawyers keep going back to court and saying it's outrageous to ask our client to give a deposition in a civil case when he's facing a possible criminal case, because although the case has faltered and the two grand juries have refused to indict, Tom Snedden refuses to close the case and keeps giving public statements saying this is an ongoing investigation. So Michael's lawyers go back to court and back to court and back to court and say, please don't make our client give a deposition. It's prejudicial. And the judge keeps saying, I can't continue uh, this. You know, I can't continue to postpone this case indefinitely on the off chance that sometime maybe 
in the future there could possibly be a criminal prosecution. So he refuses repeatedly to delay Michael's deposition. Michael privately at this time, we know through his friends, is insisting he will not settle this case. Uh, but what happens is that on the eve of Michael being forced to give his deposition, he is left with no choice but to settle the civil case because the alternative is to prejudice the criminal case should it come about. So they fight and they fight and then they lose the fight. And the and the choice is give the deposition and prejudice the criminal case or settle and preserve your right to testify and present your defense for the first time in a criminal court. Okay, so let's lay this out in, in layman's terms, or a bit more in layman's terms so that everyone can understand. Because this <clears throat> this is a sticking point for a lot of people. They'll say, well, well, if he did it, why did he pay a bunch of money? To that, I would respond with, well, if you're a kid, if you really believed your kid was sexually abused or molested, would you take the money and run, or would you not stop until <clears throat> you got justice? Now, what you're talking about when you're talking about prejudicing the criminal case. So there's two cases that hopefully everyone who's listening to this knows, two main cases that happen, criminal cases and civil cases. Civil case, you get money. Criminal case is possibly a jail sentence or whatever if you're, if you're convicted, right? Yeah. So in Michael Jackson's case, to sum up what you had said, before this went public, they tried to get Michael Jackson to settle for $20 million, and they said, then this whole thing will go away. Michael said, no, I'm not going to do it. I'll fight it. Then everything yep. went public, and then no grand jury would indict Michael Jackson for a criminal case, but the civil case kept going on. And so yeah. what looked like was, because in a civil case, it's not, you don't have to find someone guilty. Um, the The burden of proof is much lower. Yeah, it's, it's uh, more likely than not. So in a criminal court, you have to prove somebody guilty beyond all reasonable doubt. Whereas in a civil court, it's 50.1%. If you think it's more likely than not that it happened, then you find in the plaintiff's favor. And again, we're talking about a situation that doesn't look good. Regardless of you think he's guilty or innocent, it doesn't look good this yeah. relationship with this kid. So I would, if I was advising him too, I'd probably say, ooh, the, do we really want to chance this? Because what would have happened, pos the fear, if I understand you, is that, so the, the criminal case was not going ahead. However, the civil case was going ahead. If Michael Jackson had decided to go ahead and fight the civil case, regardless of how that turned out, the prosecutors, the district attorney, could have gone and heard what the defense's argument was, and then had a criminal case happened, they could tailor their own case to work around any flaws that there might be, to have a greater chance at convicting Michael in a criminal court now that they've already heard all of the aces that were up the defense's sleeve, so to speak. Exactly. So they can come and listen to your defense, listen to you poking all the holes that you poke in the case. And then they can go, we now need to change our case so that these holes don't exist anymore. So it's like cheating, in effect. Now, here, here's my question for you. Why was there, this is what I'm assuming, and correct me where I'm wrong or, or right or whatever, but if Michael had gone through and fought the civil case and won the civil case, there probably would have been no more likely a chance that a criminal case would have happened. But if he had lost the civil case, Snedden could have used that possibly to uh, propel a criminal case to start or what, what was, yeah. 
So, well, what was happening was that Snedden would not let this go. So um, although the two grand juries had failed to indict, he refused to close the case and kept making public statements saying we're continuing to investigate. It's known now that he traveled to at least three continents uh, to interview people who he thought might have been molested by Michael Jackson, who all told him to bugger off, essentially. Um, so he was traveling around the world trying to make this case work. He sent his investigators abroad also to investigate ex-employees, that kind of thing. It all fell flat. But he was spending huge amounts of public money on trying to prop up this case against Michael Jackson. What his motivation was, nobody really knows. Some well, he'd be in the history books forever. Well, yeah, exactly. Some people say he was a glory hunter. Some people say it was Ray Shaw. Some people say he was just uh, an obsessive prosecutor anyway. His his nickname locally was Mad Dog because he was known for being a ferocious prosecutor who wouldn't let things go. So I had heard about some sketch sketchy racial rumors about Snedden. Was there anything substantiated behind that? I've never seen it substantiated. The only thing that was questionable was um, during the trial in 2005, he referred to Chris Tucker, the black actor and comedian, who was a test. He was a witness that testified in the trial. Called him boy, didn't he? He called him boy. Yeah. He said, um, "Be a good boy." Uh, something like that. So, um, but really, there were rumors that Snedden, I mean, Michael wrote a song about Tom Snedden where he said, do you think he's a brother with the KKK? (laughs) Which probably didn't do much to help the situation. But, um, you know, I don't, I don't think there's ever been any substantiation that, that Tom Snedden was racist. But nonetheless, it remains a popular theory among fans of Michael Jackson. Yeah, I mean, Snedden was old enough to know what the implications are of calling a black man boy. I mean, that is yeah. that is really strange. It's an odd it's an odd choice of language for sure. So yeah. basically, at this point, Snedden wasn't letting it go. So they were worried. So what you're saying is, regardless of how, if they had fought the civil suit, regardless of the outcome, there still might be a chance that in the future, Snedden could Snedden would somehow be able to get a criminal case started. Exactly. Okay. And if he did, he would have access to their defense through public record. Right. Okay. So Michael ends up settling the case because they, the defense, Michael's defense does not want Stedden to be able to work around the defense strategy if there ends up being a, a criminal case one day. Did Snedden ever close that case? I don't believe he ever closed it. No, I think it remained open at the time that the second case came around in 2003. Because I I believe that um, after the Martin Bashir documentary, there was some sort of statement issued by the police department that said, we continue to investigate Michael Jackson. Words to that effect. All right. So basically, Michael decided to settle the case. They settled. What happened after that in terms of, if you could just briefly sum up the media's thoughts, public perception, what became of Jordy in the years um, since 1993? until 2003. So what happened was the settlement was completely misrepresented by the press on mass around the world um, who failed, either failed to understand the nuances of a civil versus a criminal suit or simply chose to ignore them. So the story that was told by the press forevermore was that Michael Jackson had bought his way out of jail, had bought his way out of a trial. 
some of the headlines at the time were along the lines of justice for sale. The story of why Michael Jackson settled was never properly told. This explanation of the conflict and the potential prejudice of a criminal trial. And it's important to note that the settlement did not preclude the Chandlers from testifying in a criminal case. Um, so had Snedden brought a criminal case, it would have not stopped them from testifying at all. Um, they still would have been able to go into court and say anything that they wanted to. So the settlement also, it's important to point out, was for negligence. Michael did not in any way accept that he was guilty when he paid that settlement. Neg negligence for what? It just said global negligence. So it was, um, I mean, you could read that as anything you wanted. To be honest, it could be he was negligent to put himself in a vulnerable position. But um, it specifically said in the settlement that he denied the allegations. So the settlement was totally mischaracterized. It did enormous damage to Michael Jackson. Although he continued to be a massively popular pop star, in terms of his reputation, it made him a laughing stock, a punchline. Um, he was mocked. He was questioned. Um, it opened the doors for anybody who wanted to uh, try to sue him or wanted to try to get money from him or take advantage of him. They had an easy stick to beat him with. Uh, so you see there's a deposition tape which is available online, which was recorded in about 1996 over a completely separate issue. And in the middle of the um, the case, in the middle of the deposition, they start asking him all these questions about whether he's ever molested any children of no relevance whatsoever to the case. But you can see it just really horrifies and infuriates Michael Jackson. He almost throws his hat across the room. It ruined his life in a sense. And what you see with Michael Jackson is a, a massive downward spiral. You see an incredible artistic renaissance in a way or not a renaissance because he was at the height of his powers at the time anyway the dangerous album before this all happened was on course to outsell the bad album which had preceded him so you get the history album the history album is an incredible piece of work easily his most personal uh work his least commercial work of his adult solo career it's a, an incredibly expressive interesting lyrically you know, jam-packed with, um, it's probably, I've described it before as the most anti-establishment album you will ever hear by a mainstream pop star. People will think listening to that, that that's hyperbole because it's Michael Jackson and so many people have their idea of him as some caricature they've seen on a comedy show or some some half-assed tribute they've seen on an award show or something. And, and it's usually always, you know, you think, Fun stuff, beat zombies, it. thriller, yeah. beat it, smooth yeah. criminal. But <laughs> the history album is really, I remember getting that album and some of the stuff on, some of the music was so dark that it was kind of surprising. Like I couldn't listen to Little Susie, you know, for, I mean, mm. if that does not sound at all like a Michael Jackson song, like what you would think of, you know? And some of the stuff I was, I remember listening to when I was a teenager and thinking, Jeez, man, where was his headspace at? I mean, when you listen to Too Bad, and then the video <laughs> for that again, written by uh, the story written by Stephen King, kind of a sequel to Thriller. When you listen to Too Bad, every time I hear that song, I just think of him in the studio, just growling those lyrics, just thinking of of the DA the entire time. Just like, yeah. especially when you hear that acapella, just all the passion in his voice as he's belting that out. But could you expand a bit on why you'd say that's the most anti-establishment album by a major pop star of all time? 
you will never ever hear an album by a major pop star. I mean, it is just it's anti-police, it's anti-military, it's anti-banker, it's anti-corporate, it's anti-lawyer, anti-insurance. He's ripping the shits out of everyone. I mean, if you look at some of the songs, like there's um there's a song on there called Tabloid Junkie. Mm. And if you take some of the lyrics to that song and you just look at them on, on a piece of paper you think is a public enemy record, it's talking <laughs> about institutional racism. I think the second verse is something like, in the hood, frame him if you could. Yeah. Shoot to kill, then blame him if you will. But if he dies, then sympathize. Such false witnesses, damn self-righteousness. Yeah. If he's black, stab him in the back. Or in the face, then lie to shame the race. I mean, this the the whole album is like that. It's just furious. It's it's the uh, the song Money, where um, he's talking about the military or the police, and he's talking. Um, if now you're wearing the badge, you're called the just you're called the just few. You're saluting the flag. Your country trusts you. And then he goes on to talk about, but actually they'll do anything corrupt to get their hands on money. It's the whole album is massively anti-establishment the way he sings on the history album that you can tell he's really angry and it is a really special uh piece of work and that was kind of michael's response i guess to 93 because he had a gag order slapped on him didn't he he couldn't talk about the uh with the settlement uh the settlement precluded him from discussing the case and what happened this is another window into the confusing mind of evan chandler um is that michael releases the history album Evan Chandler decides that this is a breach of the gagging order, which was part of the settlement. And so he goes to court and requests permission from a judge to release his own album called Evan's Story, where he will respond to the history album, which again, is this the kind of behavior you would expect from a father, you know, <laughs> recuperating from the molestation of his son? That's the thing is the, the, the further the further and further we get into 1993 and 2003 the person who ends up looking the most sane and rational is michael jackson that's the crazy thing yeah that is the crazy i mean you know and some of the things he did are totally irrational for of instance course. after 93 to keep letting kids in his house that shit crazy totally crazy but you know in terms of the, what's going on around him like you've got the father of this kid who's he's claiming his kid's been molested and his priority is to go to court and say he wants to release an album you know this is it's just insane and what happened to jordy in the interim from 93 to 2003 that's that's interesting that is extremely interesting he gained legal emancipation from his parents and didn't speak to them for a decade did you read about the abuse allegations with uh, that Jordy leveled against his father? I guess he had. Yeah, they got back in touch after about 10 years, and um, he then accused his father of trying to beat him to death with a dumbbell weight, yeah. I believe. Uh, and then a few years later, Evan died of a self-inflicted gunshot wound. And that was a self-inflicted wound about, what, a week after This Is It came out? Yeah, it was it was not long after Michael Jackson died. It was within months of Michael Jackson's death. So read into that however you will. But anyway, Jordan Jordy Chandler cut off contact from both of his parents from ninety three to two thousand three, basically, and he pretty much went into hiding. 
yeah, went into hiding, gained legal emancipation. Um, according to Tom Mesereau, because uh, Geordie Chandler was asked to testify at the subsequent trial and he failed to show up. Uh, he, he left, he left the, country. the country. He refused. He wouldn't yeah. testify against Michael. He wanted nothing to do with it. And um, Mesereau, Michael Jackson's lawyer for the, the trial, um, he gave a speech at Harvard Law School a few months after the trial where he said that had Geordie Chandler taken the stand, he had multiple witnesses who were prepared to testify that in the subsequent years, Geordie Chandler had told them that the reason he gained legal emancipation from his parents was because he hated them for what they made him say about Michael and uh, that none of it was true. This is one of the saddest stories that you could imagine, you know, in a lot yeah. of ways. And so then, in, so in the years in between, Michael keeps himself busy by releasing the History album, which is his way of talking about it without actually violating the gag order. There's a few notable things that happen, such as marrying Lisa Marie Presley and Debbie Rowe and having children of his own. Is there anything important that we should talk about before we get to 2003 and the next round of allegations? I think the important thing to keep in mind is the context in which 2003 happens, which is that from the late 90s, the very late 90s into the early noughties, Michael slips back into drug addiction. Um, so he becomes addicted to painkillers during the Geordie Chandler allegations in 93 and 4, goes to rehab and gets clean. Then in 1999, he performs a concert for charity. Two concerts. Yeah, he performs two concerts. And at the second concert, um, he's on top of a bridge uh, performing Earth Song. And what's supposed to happen is the bridge splits into three parts. And the part that he's standing on slowly lowers itself back down to the stage level and he climbs off. What happens is that goes wrong. And the part of the bridge that he's standing on plummets down below the stage floor and he damages several vertebrae in his back. He is put on painkillers, understandably, and as far as we can tell, never gets back off of them again until the trial. Um, his appearance suffers. His behavior suffers. You see at his 30th anniversary concert in 2001, he shows up hours late staggers up the red carpet, clinging to Elizabeth, to Elizabeth Taylor for support. I wonder how much that injury in 1999 affected his performing, because that was the last time I really, really saw him dance where it looked like it was just magic. Yeah, that's the last time he looked like he was performing effortlessly and at a standard which was comparable to his best. Come 2001, he does these uh, two 30th anniversary shows. The first one, he shows up with Elizabeth Taylor three or four hours late. Elizabeth Taylor is an old lady at this point, walking up the carpet, the red carpet with a man in his early 40s. He is clinging to her for support. His flies are undone on his trousers. Uh, his face is sort of hanging open. His mouth is hanging open. His eyes are glassy and wide. Something had gone terribly wrong with his plastic surgery, and he gives interviews on the red carpet, and he's slurring visibly and he looks medicated he goes on stage barely manages the concert spends most of the concert bent double the producer david guest sits in the audience and cries because it's so bad um and th these were two concerts right yeah the, 
the second show was a marked improvement, but still nothing comparable to Michael at his best. And just so we're clear, so in 1999, there were two charity concerts, one in Seoul, Korea, second one in Munich, Germany. Munich, Germany's when the bridge malfunctioned and he got re-addicted to painkillers. In 2001, he did kind of, he did two more concerts, and at this point is when Charlie's talking about it. He showed up looking horrible, addicted to pain medication again. Uh, the first night was horrible. The second night was an improvement, but still it didn't look like Michael Jackson as, as we knew him as a performer. And the second night happened on September 10th, wasn't it? 2001? September 10th, so the day before the terror attack. Yeah. Um, and this is just a general feature of Michael Jackson's career for the next two years leading up to the uh, second round of allegations is that his judgment is seriously impaired by his addiction to painkillers. He is not behaving rationally. He's making extremely poor business decisions. He's making extremely poor personal decisions. And um, one of those decisions is to participate in the Martin Bashir documentary, Living with Michael Jackson. And um, initially, that decision to participate in the Bashir documentary. I was always under the impression that because Bashir did really well-regarded interview with Michael's friend, Princess Diana, that Michael thought, well, maybe this will help give me a career resurgence. Yeah, so what happens is uh, there are three British documentary makers who are all vying for a, a chance to make a documentary about Michael Jackson. One of them is Sir David Frost, who's famous for the, the Nixon interview, uh, where he says, um, if the president does it, it's not illegal. Uh, one of them is Louis Theroux, who's now globally famous because of his Scientology documentary. And um, one of them is Martin Bashir, who is known in the UK for being a panorama reporter uh, for BBC, who famously did the, the Princess Diana interview, where she spoke about how there were three people in her marriage to Prince Charles. And um, Uri Geller, is Michael's friend at this point, which again is indicative of the state of mind Michael was in because Uri Keller really did just use Michael Jackson for publicity for a couple of years. And the whole thing was just ridiculous. Uri Geller, for people who don't know, by the way, is the man who became famous for claiming he could bend spoons with his mind. Is that correct? Yeah, but only the spoons that he pre-prepared uh, and then rubbed <laughs> with his fingers. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, this is indicative of Michael Jackson's judgment at this point in time. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, he becomes an honorary director of Uri Geller's football club and then uh, on the day admits that he knows nothing about football. I mean, it's just the whole thing was embarrassing. But um, Uri Geller has become this sort of go-to man for anybody that wants to get in touch with Michael Jackson. And of the three people he could have put in touch with Michael Jackson, beyond any comprehension, he chooses Martin Bashir, which is just outrageous. Why you would do that, I've no idea. But but at the time, was that seen as a bad idea? To me, as a journalist in England, it seems like a very stupid thing to do. I mean, because you've got Sir David Frost, who's just an incredibly respected old school journalist. He's a bit of a Walter Cronkite character for England. And then you had Louis Theroux, who makes these kind of gently amusing documentaries, which do poke fun at their subjects, but always in a lighthearted way. And he always finds the best in people. So he will go and hang around with people who will have strange reputations or be regarded perhaps in the UK as slightly eccentric. 
and he always makes them lovable. Um, he'll poke a bit of fun, but he does it in a way which is, you know, warm-hearted. That's probably what Michael needed. I agree. That's it. I mean, if it was me, I would have sent Louis Theroux, but Uri Geller sends Martin Bashir. I mean, you know, heaven only knows why he did that, but he sends Martin Bashir. Uh, I know from speaking to Michael's manager a couple of years ago at the time, who's called Dieter Wiesner, the German man, um, he knew nothing about Michael having agreed to this interview until he got to Neverland one day and said, where's Michael? And one of the staff members said, he's filming a documentary. And Wiesner just goes, what are you talking about? Um, so Michael signs all these documents with Bashir, totally bad judgment. And Michael has a brainwave and he thinks, the thing that's damaged me the most in the last 10 years is people's opinion about my relationship with children. So wouldn't it be a great idea if I invited this boy who I've helped cure his cancer called Gavin Arviso? Why don't I invite him and his family up to the ranch? And then Martin Bashir can film me and Gavin talking about his story and people will understand what a lovely person I am. Well, I sit here on the couch, and we hold hands together, and he's resting his head on my shoulder and talking about... Ugh. And it will be beautiful. Right. People will think, wow, what a lovely man. So, <laughs> you know, so this it turns out to be perhaps the worst decision in Michael Jackson's life, apart from getting involved with the Arvizos anyway, because of what they turn out to be. Okay, so basically this all came about because Michael Jackson befriended a con man, Uri Geller, who put him in touch with a con man documentary filmmaker, Martin Bashir, who made a documentary that centered on Michael Jackson's relationship with a family of cons. Terrific. So where do we go from here? Yeah, so it's probably a good idea to just tell the story of Gavin Arvizo and how he comes into Michael's life, which is that in the late 90s, He's about eight years old, and he's diagnosed with cancer. And his family start uh, fundraising for um, his cancer treatment, and they start getting him in touch with celebrities in a sort of a make-a-wish type sense. And he starts hanging around with people like um, George Lopez and Chris Tucker and uh, eventually Michael Jackson. Michael invites them out to the ranch, he buys them a car, uh, he takes them on holidays, etc., looks after them, and um, eventually Gavin is cured. And then when Martin Bashir comes to Neverland to film his documentary, Michael thinks what a great idea it would be to invite Gavin up here and his family so that they, they can tell the story of how I helped them when he was dying and how now he's okay and people will understand my relationship with children and what it's all about. Um, unfortunately for Michael, he makes a poor judgment on the day he holds Gavin's hand during the interview. Mm. And then uh, in the interview talks about how Gavin has stayed in his bedroom, albeit points out that he gave his bed to Gavin. Gavin asked, can I sleep in your bedroom? Michael said, only if your mum says it's okay. Uh, then once they're there, they have an argument about who's going to sleep in the bed and who's going to sleep on the floor. Michael says to Gavin, if you love me, you will sleep in the bed. Gavin sleeps in the bed with his brother. Michael puts the sleeping bag on the floor. And this is Gavin, tell Gavin tells this story. 
Gavin tells this story. This is not Michael Jackson. This is Gavin, right? So uh, Michael Jackson's bedroom is a two-story duplex as well. It's important to understand. This is not like a a 10 by 8 box room. <laughs> this is uh, it's like bigger than most people's houses. So the documentary airs and quite understandably attracts a lot of criticism, albeit Michael saying nothing that he hasn't already said publicly. In the 95 Diane Sawyer interview, he said, I will continue to sleep in a room with children. He goes on TV with Bashir and says, I still sleep in a room with children. And it causes a furore. Um, the headlines are misleading. If you love me, you'll sleep in my bed. They omit the fact that Jackson slept on the floor, etc. Um, this creates a new buzz around Tom Snedden. People start going to Tom Snedden and saying, are you going to investigate? Somebody makes a report to the Department of Children and Family Services. It might have been Gloria Allred. I was just going to say, I think that was Gloria Allred. Yeah, that sounds familiar to me, but I'm not 100% sure. Uh, the Department for Children and Family Services interview the family and they interview Michael Jackson and conclude that there's nothing going on. Nothing is awry. But a few months later, a few months after it aired, about six months after it aired, maybe a little more, suddenly news breaks that Neverland has been raided by Tom Snedden and 70 sheriffs. Once again, Michael isn't there when it happens. Michael is not there. Michael is in Las Vegas filming a music video uh, for the One More Chance single. He was trying to extract himself from his contract with Sony, who he believed had uh, attempted to defraud him out of his publishing catalogue. So he uh, believed at the time that he owed them one single, and he was in Las Vegas shooting the video, literally in the middle of shooting the video for the single that would free him from his deal with Sony when word reaches him that Neverland has been raided in his absence. And so his reaction, we now know, was what? I spoke to Dieter Wiesner, uh, the manager at the time. I wrote a whole article about the uh, the One More Chance video and what happened there. I remember um, reading it. Also fantastic writing. What's the title of that and where can people find that on your website? Oh, what is it called? I, I think it's called... Something to the effect of how Michael Jackson's movie dream turned into a nightmare, something to that effect. And um, Dieter tells in the in the uh, interview how initially Michael was just horrified and sort of stoic and crying. And then when it emerges that the accusers are the Arviso family, he becomes enraged and he says, we're fighting this. And he says, I want this kid in public. And I want him to look me in the eye and tell me that I did this. Ultimately, that is what happened in 2005, because uh, Tom Snedden, on this occasion, successfully arrests and charges Michael Jackson. And it proceeds to a trial just over a year later. There's so much that blew up here. Where do we go from this point? I mean, the, first of all, I remember when the allegations broke. The first thing I thought at the time, and again, as someone who was a fan of him, I thought, well, let's wait and see. You know, let's wait for, let's see what the evidence shows. I mean, I, I don't know. If, as soon as I found out it was Gavin Arvizo, I thought, there's no way he did this. There's no way, especially when I saw the timeline, I thought, okay, so Michael Jackson goes on an international documentary in front of tens of millions, and he takes all this heat for holding hands with this kid. 
and for talking about how this kid sleeps in his bed and blah, 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 blah. And then what happens is Michael decides that after this airs and Gloria Allred has gone and tried to get children's services to investigate him, then he decides to start committing sexual assault. I found that really hard to believe. Yeah, the timeline was totally nonsensical, but the accusers and the prosecutor were backed into a corner. They were stuck in a, a situation where the family had known Michael Jackson for about three years, maybe four years before they made this allegation. But unfortunately for them, they had appeared in a Martin Bashir documentary where they'd spoken about what a lovely person Michael Jackson was and how he was a father figure and he'd saved their son from cancer. So it was not really feasible for them to then go on the record and say, yeah, all this time Michael was abusing Gavin and we just decided to lie about it on TV. So the only way that an allegation could be brought was to claim that it had happened after the Martin Bashir documentary. When everyone was on red alert and Michael knew everyone was on exactly. red alert. Exactly. I mean, the story is, the story that they go to court with is that Michael Jackson begins molesting Gavin Arviso in the middle of the Department for Children and Family Services investigation, <laughs> in which the Department for Children and Family Services are asking Gavin Arviso whether he's ever been molested. That's, that is the timeline that they go to court with. And the timeline is compromised further because it turned out that in the, in the weeks immediately after the documentary aired, Michael had commissioned by a rival station, a rival TV station, a documentary called Take Two, the footage you were never meant to see. And it's a, a counterattack on Martin Bashir, where... Hosted by Maury Povich. Hosted by Maury Povich for some reason. And uh, <laughs> Michael had been secretly recording his interviews with Martin Bashir, which is devastating for Bashir. Which Bashir didn't know. Oops. Because Bashir didn't know. And he's captured all this footage of stuff that Bashir has cut out of his documentary and he's lied and he's omitted stuff. Uh, for instance, Bashir had asked Michael Jackson's team to invite a bunch of children up to the ranch. Um, and they said, yeah, how many do you want? And he said, oh, maybe two dozen. And they go, oh, OK. So then they arrange for some kids to come up to the ranch. And then Bashir films it and puts a voiceover on the top going, I was disturbed that Michael Jackson continued to invite children to his ranch, you know, and all this stuff. At his own suggestion. Yeah. <laughs> and he um, he'd spoken to Michael on the, you know, on the tape saying your relationship with children makes me want to weep because it's so innocent, pure. Um, he had uh, antagonized Michael Jackson by just before they were going to do an interview saying to him, you know, Elizabeth Taylor's going to die soon, don't you? And um, there was all this stuff that was cut out. It was just outrageous. And it made Bashir look ridiculous. When I saw Take Two that aired like a week later, when I saw um, the unedited Bashir footage, I thought to myself, this guy is just like as close to evil as you can call someone. Because what he did was he was maliciously dishonest. I mean, it wasn't an accident. He literally did everything he could to set Michael up and then portray him without coming out and calling him a child sex abuser. But he he did everything he could to set him up as just like the, one of the most dangerous freaks on the planet when that was so completely dishonest when you saw what the original interview footage was. Yeah, it was it was willfully malicious. 
you know, some of the stuff, because a lot of fans complained about the stuff that was included in the documentary. And I, I, as a journalist, was looking at it, we're going, hang on a minute. If Michael is saying this stuff, then why shouldn't Bashir use it? You know, it's Michael's fault if he's going to say something dumb on camera, uh, albeit he was impaired at the time by drugs um, quite clearly at, at various points in the documentary. But the problem with what Bashir did was, as you say, he set Michael Jackson up. He created scenarios in which Michael he would lead Michael down a path and work really hard to get him to say something which he could then chop and take out of context and make it look like something else. You talk about someone who cracked on the witness stand is Bashir, too. I mean, he wouldn't answer any question. There was just objection after objection after. I mean, it was he he came out of the whole thing. I think that there was a poll after everything was said and done, and Martin Bashir came out as like the fifth most disgraced Brit of all time. Do you remember that? Yeah, he was. He was voted the, into the top ten worst Britons of all time <laughs> because of how because of the Michael Jackson debacle. Because, pe- because no matter what Michael you Jackson thought of Michael Jackson, everyone could see that this was so recklessly dishonest, and a, it, it was a railroad job. Yeah, it was, and he was exposed terribly on the witness stand at the trial. So, but the point, the reason I was talking about take two is because for the take two documentary, uh, Michael has recorded by his team um, a video interview with the Arviso family, which is about an hour long in total, uh, edited down shorter, and then it was never included in the show. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't remember ever seeing that. No, they, they decided not to use it. But what happens is the prosecution finds out that it exists. And now they're in big trouble because they've created their case. And it turns out that this throws the timeline out even more. So what they do, they charge Michael Jackson with uh, about 10 counts or nine counts of providing alcohol to a minor and uh, abusing a child. And then a series of incidents happen, which are um, they show the prosecution in very poor light. Firstly, they exceed the terms of their own search warrant. They go into Michael Jackson's home and they access areas of his house that are not covered by the warrant and they remove property. They go into his office, they remove his business papers, which seems to be a purely malicious act to try to screw him over until the trial occurs. Then they raid the office of the private eye who has been hired by his defense team. So it's routine in a major trial for defense to use an investigator they do things like tracking down and interviewing witnesses taking witnesses to and from court etc routine behavior the fact that he hired because some of the anti-jackson press were saying and he even hired a private investigator that's totally normal that happens all the time the prosecution illegally raid the office of michael jackson's defense private eye uh, which is a breach of attorney-client privilege they're not allowed to do that They later go into court and say, we did it by accident. And then the judge bizarrely rules, "Okay, well, if it was an accident, you can keep all the material that you seized, which is just absurd. And then they also go into the home of Michael Jackson's assistant, personal assistant, Evie Tavassi, and they remove from her home uh, a folder which is marked for Mesereau. Mesereau being Michael Jackson's attorney, which again is a breach of attorney client privilege. At some point in the process, they become aware of two things. Firstly, Michael Jackson has an alibi for the charges 
as they exist on the indictment. When the you dates... say, when, yeah, when you say the dates, I wanted to ask about that because that's one of the things that my memory now is a little fuzzy on. But I'm pretty sure, didn't someone die from the Bee Gees or something? I thought Michael was at a funeral like across the country when the prosecution claimed. I thought he was on a boat somewhere. It was a, a two-week-long period, and I believe he was in Miami, not at Neverland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was across the country. Yeah, so they charge him with all these offences, and it says, on or about, or between these dates, you did, blah, blah, blah. Then Michael Jackson's then a lo then lawyer, attorney, um, Mark Geragos, goes on TV and reveals Michael Jackson's alibi live on TV, which was a stupid thing to do. And um, additionally, the prosecution finds out that there exists this videotape of the whole family being interviewed extensively um, on video for the Take Two documentary, albeit it wasn't aired, where they're singing Michael Jackson's praises and saying he never did anything wrong. He's like a father figure. He saved Gavin's life, etc. Why wasn't it aired, by the way? I don't know why it wasn't included in the end. Maybe they just decided that they wanted to spare the family the embarrassment or something, but it just it was never included. But the prosecution finds out about it, possibly through these illegal seizures of documents that they shouldn't be seizing. And so they add a new charge to the indictment. The new charge is of conspiracy, uh, and they accuse Michael Jackson of kidnapping the family and forcing them to deny the acts of molestation to explain away the videotape. But then, because the alibi is no longer because they find out that the alibi exists and so the charges can no longer have occurred between those dates, they change the dates on the other charges that were already on the indictment. So now their case is completely thrown out of kilter where they have Michael Jackson abducting a family and holding them against their will so that he can force them to deny on videotape a series of acts of molestation which he's not yet committed. <laughs> so <laughs> is the way that Rolling Stone magazine phrased it. So the whole case. Who wrote that, Peter was, Travers? It was um, Matt Taibbi. Matt Taibbi. Uh, the son of Mike Taibbi. So the whole case makes no sense whatsoever. And so it comes to trial in early 2005. Well, how did it get to trial? That's what I don't understand with how bogus this is. How did it even get that? How did it get past a grand jury? It's unbelievable that it came to trial, in my opinion. I suppose the problem that you have is before that grand jury enters the grand jury room, they've been exposed for 10 years to stories about Michael Jackson buying his way out of a trial. And is it reasonable to think that a grand jury is not going to take that into account? They're not allowed to take it into account, but they're going to anyway. Can you confirm or deny if part of the prosecution claimed that Michael Jackson eventually was planning to ship the whole family off to Brazil in a hot air balloon. That, <laughs> that was a claim that was made by the mother um, when she took the stand. She made a series of bizarre allegations. So she claimed that the whole interview, the whole like hour-long videotape that was shot for the Take Two documentary, she said that was all scripted. And then when the defense said, well, hang on a minute, because in between the shooting... They never turned the camera off, so they recorded all your discussions between shooting. And even there, you're praising Michael Jackson. 
And she was like, oh, yeah, that was all scripted as well. <laughs> and then they said, who scripted it? And she blamed it on some German guy that didn't even speak English. We go to trial and the prosecution starts. Uh, that's the, so the prosecution begins their case. And how does it go for them when the prosecution starts calling their witnesses? What's the prosecution's game plan? Oh, well, so their first witness is Martin Bashir, because the story that the prosecution is telling is this. Michael Jackson's career has hit the skids. He is nearly destitute. His finance is massively in debt. He's borrowed lots of money. He cannot handle another PR crisis. If there's another PR crisis, his career is dead in the water. So he calls Martin Bashir to try to rehabilitate his image. That all goes wrong. And then out of desperation to try to avoid any more negative PR, Michael Jackson masterminds the kidnap of the family, holds them against their will and forces them to record a videotape denying that they've been molested when they actually haven't been molested and then molest them. And he does this with the help of some co-conspirators. With, yeah, with a number of unindicted co-conspirators. Now, I've interviewed Michael Jackson's defense attorney at that trial, Tom Metherow, at length. And he believes that the unindicted co-conspirator tactic was an attempt to keep these people out of court. So these were the people who were best placed to vindicate Michael Jackson. But the way to keep them out of court to stop them from coming in and testifying for the defense was to tell them that they were unindicted co-conspirators, because what that meant is that anything that they said on the stand could be seen as self-incriminatory so or self-incriminating. So it was a, a way to sort of bully them into not coming to court and not taking the stand with the threat that if they did, they could find themselves in trouble. And this list of co-conspirators was lengthy. It included the former lawyer, Mark Geragos. It included both of the managers, Dieter and Ronald. It included his business partner, Mark Schaffel. It included his personal assistants, Vinnie and Frank. And the list just went on. So almost everybody in Michael Jackson's camp was precluded from testifying by the threat that if they did, they could be charged themselves. And so they opened the case with Martin Bashir. They open the case with Bashir, and what happens to what happens with Bashir? So what happens is Bashir comes and takes the stand and refuses to answer any questions at all, citing the journalist's shield statute, which means that journalists cannot be forced to testify about who their sources are or to reveal unpublished journalistic material. But he raises this statute in response to every question he's asked, no matter how basic, and even if it would not involve disclosing a source or disclosing unpublished journalistic material. Why did the judge let that fly? Because I read that in Aphrodite's book. Well, what happened was um, Mesereau repeatedly asked for Bashir to be held in contempt of court, and the judge said he would stay his decision. He said, you're request is noted, and I will make a decision at a later point. But what uh, Mesero did was he took advantage of the situation. So you've got Bashir sitting there refusing to answer anything. And so Mesero just stands up and tells the whole story through questions, uh, stands up and says, is it not true that you told Michael Jackson you were going to introduce him to Kofi Annan? and uh, help him to organize a World Children's Day? Is it not true that you told him that the documentary was about his work with AIDS sufferers and about his charity work. 
Is it not true that you promised to interview his friends and then you failed to do it? Is it not true that you asked for the children to be brought to the ranch, etc., etc.? And then he starts introducing documents and he says, uh, Mr. Bashir, Michael Jackson's signature on this document is different than it is on this document, isn't it? Bashir refuses to answer. Did you forge a signature on this document? He just told the whole story about Bashir and what a rat he was and how the whole thing had been a con job. And Bashir refused to answer any questions. So really, the decision to bring Bashir as the first witness, which uh, Snedden thought it was a genius because it allowed them to play the videotape of the Living with Michael Jackson documentary, which he was sure was going to immediately prejudice the jurors against Michael Jackson. But what it actually did was it gave Mesereau an opportunity to completely destroy their first witness, so their case got off to a terrible start. And then it got even worse when the second witness was called, and that was Anne Gabriel. Um, and she was a um, PR lady who'd been brought in to help firefight after the Martin Bashir documentary aired, and she ended up turning into a defense witness and uh, testifying that Michael Jackson had no idea what anybody in his team was doing, and that they were all acting unilaterally, and just really threw a massive spanner in the works for uh, the prosecution, because she totally undermined their conspiracy charge. I guess that when we talk about people who, if it occurred the sex abuse, the only people that would, that would have first-hand knowledge of it would have been Gavin, um, his brother claimed to, not the mother, but yeah. let's talk about the mother, but let's talk about those three. Those three were the only family that testified in court, correct? Uh, I can't remember if the father testified, David Arvizo, but if he did, it was not significant uh, testimony. So can we, who, who should we start? I, I kind of would like start, to end let's with Let's go the, chronologically with, with Star. Who is the brother? Is the is the mother on last? The mother came last of the three. Good, because yeah. she's my favorite, let's say. <laughs> yeah, let's start with Star. Yeah. So Star is Gavin Arvizo's younger brother. There was there was no um accusation that Star had been molested. No. So Star's story was that he had witnessed Gavin being molested on two occasions, although he suddenly decided it was three on the stand, which didn't do him any favours, but um he comes in, he tells a wildly different story than the story that he told originally. When he was first interviewed, he said the first act of molestation that he'd witnessed was Michael Jackson laying in the bed next to his brother, and they were both laying on their side, and Michael Jackson was rubbing his penis against his brother's buttocks. That was what he told the investigators originally. By the time he came to court, he said that they were laying side by side on their backs and that Michael Jackson had his hand in his brother's shorts. So a totally different story. Then he comes to court and tells two different versions of the same story about the second act of molestation. He claims on the first day that uh, his brother had his trousers on and then claims on the second day that he didn't. Now, all of this story is predicated on star being able to enter the room without michael jackson catching him wasn't there an alarm there was an alarm on the door so michael jackson obviously lives in a very busy house there are chefs there are cleaners etc up and down the house all the time um and he's fiercely protective of his privacy he's also very frightened of his children being abducted for what reason i don't know I think his uh, ex-wife, Debbie Rose, said that they had received specific threats. Hence the masks. Point. 
yeah, that's why the children wore masks. And all of the bedrooms in the house had uh, locks on. So in order to enter Michael Jackson's bedroom, he had to bypass an alarm, uh, which would sound like on a sensor. So if somebody walked past it, uh, almost like a doorbell going off would ring in Michael Jackson's bedroom. So um, Star claims that on two occasions he walks into Michael Jackson's bedroom and sees his brother being molested. But this hinges on Star being able to walk into the bedroom without the alarm going off. Now, Star, to put it politely, is not a skinny child. Um, <laughs> Star is quite a big, you know, quite big for his age. And uh, the idea that he would be able to sneak past this alarm was not feasible. And the defense brought into evidence videos of people trying to walk past the alarm without setting it off, and it couldn't happen. So the story didn't make any sense. And I, I seem to remember reading from transcripts, and again, because I'm going back to 2005 here to try to try and remember this, so over 10 years, but I believe that his it either ended when Mesro cross-examined him with, with, I remember reading, and did the alarm go off when you approached the bedroom? Yes. Like he admitted that, yeah, the alarm was going <laughs> off, and Michael Jackson just continued to do what he was doing to your brother? Yeah. Or something like that is what I recall. Yeah, his his testimony was quite bizarre. Well, I think it the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree, as we're about to find out. <laughs> well, he um he would told all these weirdly specific stories. I mean, it was like it was like he'd been rehearsed. He kept saying things like, "And then I walked twenty three steps into Michael Jackson." <laughs> it was all like really weirdly, um, D you know, specific stuff. Dieter Wiesner must have scripted it for him. Well, the, well, you know what was great was uh, Mesereau ruined him on cross-examination because he said, how do you know how many steps there were? And he said, I have this thing where whenever I climb up steps, I count them. And then Mesereau starts asking him questions about all these other steps he's count, climbed up. And of course, he can't remember how many of them there are <laughs> on any of them. So it just was like ridiculous. <laughs> and then there was a whole section about um, where they claimed that while they were kept hostage at Neverland, they weren't allowed to look at clocks. They weren't allowed to know what oh, time yeah. it was or what day it was. And then yeah. Mesereau is going, well, isn't there a clock at the train station? Isn't there a clock outside the house? Isn't If you stand on one hill and look in this direction, isn't there a clock? There were clocks everywhere at Neverland. I mean, it was like Disney World. There's a clock as big as Rhode Island outside of the main house. <laughs> like, <I> yeah. <laughs> you know, it, it's just crazy. Um, his testimony was terrible. And and then there was this whole issue with the, the wine cellar where um, – Okay, two – Two things. For, yeah. Before we get into the wine, what do you make of people like Diane Diamond, Nancy Grace, claiming that the only reason Michael Jackson had an alarm outside his bedroom was to alert him to stop sexually abusing kids when people would walk up? I mean, you know, how could they possibly claim to know that? And it's just uh, a silly thing to say. You know, if you live in a house which is very busy with workmen, gardeners, cleaners, chefs, etc., walking around all the time, uh, it's reasonable that you would want a bit of warning before people come into your room. The other thing that you have to remember is that Michael Jackson, as we saw him, was not Michael Jackson as he looked. Um, Michael Jackson had a skin condition called vitiligo, which left his whole body, including his face, covered in blotches. Right. And he also um, suffered a terrible burn in a Pepsi commercial, which left him partially bald and scarred on his head. And he had to wear hair pieces for the rest of his life. And by that point in his life also, his hair had receded 
and the front of his head had been tattooed black and he wore a permanent wig. To say nothing of the other surgery he got that didn't go so well. I mean, it took some work, yeah. I think, to get him to look. Exactly. And he would not have wanted people walking in on him looking as he did without all his makeup and hair and stuff. You're totally right. And that's how I always saw it. And he was also extremely paranoid. You know, like I remember reading guards, it was either testimony or guards later talked about how he was terrified of robbers breaking in. I think it's because when he lived at the Encino home, that crazy girl kept hopping the fence that claimed that he was the father of like yeah. <laughs> one of her twins, hence yeah. where Billie Jean came from. So he'd had experience with crazy people hopping the fence to his property before. So I'm not surprised he'd be paranoid. The other thing that I just wanted to bring up before we get into the wine cellar stuff. So Michael Jackson had a quote unquote secret room in his bedroom that people like, mm -hmm. again, that I heard at the time, people of the ilk of like Nancy Grace and Diane Diamond. Um, these people were trying to make it sound so sinister and, and different people were talking about how that was the room he, he had, he had that room there so he could take kids in there to molest him as, as though he couldn't do it in his own room. He had to do like a room inside a room like that somehow made more sense. And I don't remember the last time I signed on to Reddit and on the front page, there wasn't some story about, I just made a secret room in my house. I mean, it's just cool shit. It's just something people love to do. So that was another thing where I'm thinking, okay, you people, you really don't care about the truth. You're just trying to take anything here and make it as salacious and evil as you possibly can. Why in the world would Michael Jackson not be able to just shut his own bedroom door and, and do it if he was going to do it? Why would he then need to take them into like a room within a room? I mean, it was clear that these people were not thinking. Well, plus that was not the allegation. You know, the allegation was not that he'd taken the kid into another room. So it was just a, a bunch of bullshit, really. It was it wasn't even a secret room there was a staircase that led to the room <laughs> so it's not it's not like it's hidden down a rabbit hole or it wasn't something. behind a closet or something well you walked up the stairs and then you opened a door and it was there i mean it was oh, okay. not difficult to find your way into plus everybody knew it was there anyway you didn't have to call in scotland yard to figure out how to yeah. get access to <laughs> yeah you know press the magic phone and then do, you know <laughs> do a fingerprint scanner or something you know it was um like the bat cave because they were trying <laughs> they were trying to <laughs> because because they found a picture of macaulay culkin framed in that room well so what he was hanging out with macaulay culkin like every day in the early 90s I, I couldn't figure out how they were drawing a, connect, a, a dot between there's a picture of Macaulay Culkin in this room, who's a known friend of his for years, to therefore he was somehow molesting kids in this room. It was just very strange. The lengths the media went to were quite ridiculous. The the way they would try to reframe everything, you know, so he can't just have a playroom in his house. It has to be a secret playroom and it can't just have dolls in it, which children play with It's creepy dolls creepy dead-eyed you know whatever or, or models of children not a doll it's a model of a child you know so it's the way they take everything and try to i mean uh tom sneddon even took art books like legitimate art books which you can go into a shop today and buy and um because they had like cherubs in and things he was claiming that they, this was indicative of a, an interest in child pornography which is just lunacy thomas mesereau wrote in a document in that was submitted to the court he said not since the dark days of almost a century ago has a prosecutor tried to claim that ownership of work by a known artist is evidence of a crime against the state and again people and people say about those books because because some of those books um two in particular 
at one of those books, I remember reading Michael had written this, like this wistful, like thing. It, it was very sad about, I'll look at how joyful, like these boys look like this. This is how I wish that my life had been or, you know, something to that yeah. sentiment. Yeah. Very sad. And people will say, these are pictures of young, you know, sometimes naked boys, sometimes blah, blah, blah. And this is the exact type of book that a pedophile would own and blah, blah, blah. Well, just pedophiles also drink milk. You know, do you, do you drink yeah. milk? I mean, I mean, yeah, like I'm, sh I'm sure yeah. there's no doubt in my mind that some people who have a sexual interest in children could potentially own books like that or those books, but that does not therefore mean that everyone who, again, these books you can legally buy. These are not, I, I can go into a shop today and buy that book if I want to buy it. Yeah. I mean, it's a totally legal art book. They are art books just as a point, again, as a point of fact, whether or not you believe he did it, you have to come to grips with reality here. These are legal art books. And the story went around again, like two years ago. For some reason, it came back up in the media about the quote unquote child pornography they found at Neverland. Oh well, yeah. I know, the, I know the story. That was all fake. It was all well, fabricated. Of course it was. Yeah. But, but, and here's what I asked people. So Michael Jackson during the trial, he was charged with 10 felony counts and four lesser degree. Okay. Um, 14 counts in total and owning child Pornography is a crime, okay? He was mm -hmm. not charged with owning child pornography because he didn't own child pornography. And I, I yeah. said to people, I said, why can't you just use your head for two seconds? Just Google the charges. If they had found child pornography at the time, and it's just now making the media rounds again, ask yourself, why was he not charged with it? Because this is a bogus story. It's not true. Anyway, sorry, I, we'd gone off on kind of a tangent. We were about to get into what is was known at the time as Jesus Juice in the wine cellar. Jesus Juice, yeah. Yeah, could you talk about that? So Michael Jackson was accused on this occasion of um, getting the boy drunk so that he could be molested by giving him wine. And the accusation was that he had been giving him wine from a wine cellar at Neverland, which was referred to by Michael Jackson as Jesus Juice. Uh, which is a story which has remained, you know, prevalent until today. People talk about it as if it's fact. It's not fact. It's um, conjecture. And the wine cellar incident. So there were it, there were witnesses who came to court and said Michael Jackson didn't give them wine. They stole the key to the wine cellar, and we caught them in there without Michael Jackson present. And there were witnesses who came to court and they said, we caught them in his bedroom when he wasn't there. They'd learned the code and they'd gone into his bedroom when he was off the ranch. There were people that came into court and said, we caught them in his bedroom going through his drawers and his suitcases and looking at pornography because Michael Jackson owned a lot of heterosexual pornographic magazines that they tr that the prosecution tried to somehow claim meant that he was he therefore had an interest in young boys, which I couldn't figure out. Yeah, that was a peculiar... Well, what they had, they had a problem. So they raid Neverland. They find about five art books, or maybe seven art books, something like that, which are legal art books that you can buy in a shop. Uh, one of them depicted gay S&M photography. Um, what, two of them, I think, had, like, uh, you know, photographs of children, including some, like, boys naked jumping in a lake that sort of thing and some of them were just sort of um m photography books that sort of thing but then they find also 
quite a large number of heterosexual pornographic magazines, um, which Michael Jackson had in a suitcase in his bedroom or a briefcase, maybe. And they're stuck with a problem here because this is evidence that Michael Jackson is a heterosexual man, seemingly. Which you can still you can still sexually abuse kids and be heterosexual. Yes. Absolutely. But it, um, it it was damaging. It was damaging to their case that Michael Jackson was obsessed with children and obsessed with little boys and etc. Um, so they had to build into the case that he was showing these magazines to kids. Uh, and that was the reason that he owned them. And uh, so there were two things. They they introduced fingerprint evidence where they found his fingerprint and the boy's fingerprint, Gavin Arvizo's fingerprint on the same page of one of the magazines. So Firstly, witnesses came to court and said, we caught those kids in his bedroom without his permission when he was not there going through all this stuff and looking at his magazines. And secondly, Tom Snedden, during the grand jury proceedings, uh, was accused of giving one of the magazines to the boy uh, or giving a number of the magazines to the boy. To Gavin. To say, yeah, to Gavin, to say, um was this, you know, did Michael show you this magazine? Did Michael show you that magazine? Then putting them into evidence bags and sending them to uh, fingerprint analysis. Okay, so I want to repeat that real quick. So before the trial starts, just to hit this home. Yeah. Snedden, the prosecutor, the district attorney, yeah. is claiming that Michael Jackson showed the boys these heterosexual porn magazines to get them aroused so then they would so they'd be aroused by naked women and therefore somehow desire michael jackson to have sexual relations with them okay that's yeah. strange in and of itself <laughs> but secondly during the grand jury proceedings snedden took these magazines he handed them to gavin to look at gavin's not wearing any gloves here okay so what what is happening gavin's fingerprints are now going to be found all throughout these magazines he's being handed. Then yep. after that, Snedden takes the magazines back and he sends them to an evidence lab where he asks them to please test the magazines and see if they can find Gavin's fingerprints on the magazines that he just had Gavin thumb through. Exactly. That is the contention by the defense. Why did the media not cover that? Well, you know, why did the media, I mean, you know. Yeah, I know. That's a rabbit hole. <laughs> I've spoken to various journalists that were at the trial, and there were a few who sort of despaired of the way that the press at large was covering the case. One of them was Linda Deutsch, I spoke to, and she said it was the worst experience. She's like the grand dame in America of court reporting. She's been at every major trial in America since Manson. And um, she said it was her worst experience of her life covering a trial because the press was so biased and so unethical, and so immature, and um, like bullies, essentially. She said it was like hanging around with a pack of school bullies for four months in Santa Maria. I swear to God, the mindset was, tee-hee-hee, he has a funny-looking face. He he molested this kid. Yeah, it was... It was I mean, I spoke to one witness. I'm not going to name them because I don't think they want me to, but I spoke to a witness in the case who uh, was a prosecution witness in the trial and they told me that they were the media was so involved in the trial and the prosecution case that they took that witness shopping and picked their outfit for them before they went to testify that was the that that is what they told me that's what this witness told me and they told me that uh, every prosecution witness that they knew was selling stories to the press which was illegal because it was a gag order and also because um you're just not supposed to do that 
But the way they were getting around it was that they were selling interviews, but they were invoicing it as photo shoots. So they do an interview and then they take a couple of pictures and then all the money would be paid for a photo shoot and not for an interview. So the media was totally inserting itself into the prosecution case. Star Aviso and the whole thing with the with the alcohol and him giving them alcohol, people testified that they had broken into the wine cellar. Star Aviso was discredited. I had read at the time that Michael Jackson was drinking wine in Pepsi cans because he didn't want kids to know he was drinking and he was a nervous flyer. Because wasn't there an allegation that he was licking one of their heads on an airplane in front of everyone? That was um, the the witness who said that was Bob Jones, allegedly. And what happened was Bob Jones was a, a disgruntled former employee of Michael Jackson, who around the time of the trial sold a book, uh, which he was co-writing with a guy called Stacy Brown. Stacy Brown is well known to Michael Jackson fans as a uh, extremely disreputable journalist. Just generally, I mean, he's been in trouble for various ethical uh, issues over his career. So he's working on this book with Stacey Brown. And in the book, it says that Bob Jones was on the plane. And um, no, it doesn't. It, sa it says that Bob Jones was with Michael Jackson once and saw him lick a child's head, right? They call Bob Jones to court and say, didn't you see Michael Jackson lick a child's head? And he's like, what are you talking about? Anyway, he, <laughs> it turns out he never wrote that portion of the book. He said he had no recollection of seeing Michael Jackson lick a child's head. He had no idea why it was in the book. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that was the witness that they called to corroborate the Arvizos claim that Michael had um, licked the boy's head on the plane, licked Gavin's head on the plane. Uh, so that just ended up standing alone as a and um, what was coincidental, you know, how coincidental that that should appear in Bob Jones's book and then the Alviso say it and then it turns out Bob Jones never saw it. You know, it's kind of suspicious. It's, it, you know, so because there were all these documents and stories that were in the public domain for the Alvisos to pick from if they wanted to. Some kind hearted soul um, decided to help the Alvisos out by leaking Jordan Chandler's deposition from the original 93 case. Yeah. So if you're one of the Arvizos, you now have a roadmap. Yeah. You know, so it's, um, it's, it's suspicious that this story appears in Bob Jones's book, then the Arvizos parrot it, and then it turns out the story was guff. Let's get to um, Gavin. Gavin, Gavin's testimony. Yeah. Can you give us a breakdown of how that went? Aphrodite Jones, by the way, I want to point out Aphrodite Jones, who is a pretty famous crime reporter, um, she all throughout the trial was saying he's guilty, he's guilty, he's guilty. Afterwards, she had a total change of heart when she went by herself. She said she kind of removed herself from the frenzy and looked at all the evidence by herself. She watched Gavin Arvizo's videotape testimony to the police several times. And she became convinced that it was all a total sham. And she wrote a book called Michael Jackson Conspiracy, all about how yeah. it was obvious that he was innocent. And she was talking about how I remember when she was describing Gavin Arvizo's interview to the police, he seemed very disinterested. He perked up when they offered him soda. He was kind of like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Then that happened type of thing, you know. So could you talk about Gavin on the stand and how that went? He came across as surly, according to various witnesses, and um, kept referring to the prosecutor, Tom Snedden, as Tom, uh, which sort of indicated a, a, an, un, an inappropriate level of closeness. <laughs> they're, they're definitely on a first-name basis. 
So the story that Gavin told never really made sense because the story is I was on cancer medication, which meant that I couldn't take alcohol if I wanted to. Right. Then Michael gave me alcohol, which would have made me very ill and possibly made me unconscious. And then having sedated me by giving me alcohol, he molested me, which I remember for reasons unknown. So it was like... So he sedated you with alcohol, but you remember him. It, it, the whole thing made no sense. Um, his story contradicted that of his brother, who had supposedly witnessed it. One thing I wanted to ask you about that I remembered was that Gavin, I think it was on the stand when he was asked about being shown porn magazines, he claimed that he had never, it was so, it was shocking, right? Because he had never seen a naked woman before. And that was something that even people that were against Michael on TV said that they found very hard to believe that this kid had never come across porn before. Do you recall that testimony? Yeah, he uh, he claimed that he'd never used the internet to look for pornography. He claimed that he'd <laughs> never heard certain words before. Well, he would be the only teenage boy who hadn't. Yeah, exactly. The other thing that was uh, significant was that to demonstrate the supposed grooming process, he had told the police and said in court that Michael Jackson told him, you have to masturbate, boys have to masturbate, because if they don't, they get pent up and then they go out and rape someone. So boys will become rapists if they don't masturbate, was what yeah. Gavin claimed that Michael said to him. But under cross-examination by Michael's defense attorney, Tom Mesereau, he admitted that it was actually his grandmother who had told him that, not Michael Jackson, which meant that the whole grooming story was predicated on a lie. Sounds like a great family. Good advice, Grandma. Well, <laughs> I mean, so you've got this this kid comes in. He had a bad attitude, according to various people that were in the courtroom, really surly, really aggressive, um, messing around. And then he started complaining in the middle. So this was under cross-examination by Mesereau. This was a Mesereau masterstroke. So he took a massive risk because the kid kept saying so. Oh, Gavin Alvisa kept saying something about Michael. He was mad at Michael. And Tom Mesereau, he told me that you're taught as a lawyer in cross-examination, never ask a question that begins with why, because you open yourself up to a bombardment of negative testimony. You have to ask closed questions, yes and no questions, or questions that you already know the answer to. But he took a massive risk. He he sensed the atmosphere. He sensed the boy's attitude. And something just told him that if he asked this question, he would get a response that would be really damning for the prosecution. And he broke all the rules and he said, why are you so mad at Michael Jackson? And Gavin Arvizo snaps back, because he stopped calling me and he didn't have to do that. Why did he have to cut me out of his life? Didn't say because he molested me. Didn't say because he sexually abused me and took advantage of me. Didn't say because I was a cancer patient and he gave me alcohol. He said because he stopped calling me. You know who that reminds me of? Evan Chandler. Yeah. Yeah. It was a really... Mesereau thought it was the most seismic moment of that cross-examination that he gave the boy this golden opportunity. Why are you so mad at Michael Jackson? He could have spent the next 10 minutes saying, because he gave me wine, he jeopardized my life, he abused me, he did this, he did that. And he just shot back because he stopped calling me. It sounds like a jaded ex-girlfriend. 
that's kind of the way it came across actually was that uh the whole family just seemed to be really cheesed off because michael had cut them out so after the bashir thing the family go to florida with michael the Arvizo family and chris tucker comes and joins them uh, or maybe he goes with the family but anyway chris tucker is there he'd already known the family he already knew them through their dubious fundraising and celebrity meetups and all that sort of thing, which I'll come to later. But so what happens is they're they're all together and the family is bugging Chris Tucker because they keep saying they want him to give them their his car. They keep saying, you've got loads of money. You've got enough cars. You could just give us this car and it wouldn't matter. And he found it very strange. And um, he takes Michael aside and he says to him, Michael, there's something wrong with this family. I'm warning you now, there is something seriously wrong with this family. And Michael just basically cuts them out. Michael had given them a car. The car broke. He said he was going to get it fixed. Then this all happens and he ends up not getting it fixed because he's been warned off. Don't have anything more to do with this family. And they got furious that he wouldn't give them the car back or he wouldn't buy them a new car. Gavin Arvizo seems furious that he's not getting the phone calls from Michael Jackson that he used to. There was another incident that he talks about in his testimony that he was really angry because one time they went to Neverland and stayed there for free. And when they got there, the staff told them that Michael was not at the ranch. I remember that. And then they they saw him in the library and they were angry that he was avoiding them. So it's the whole there was an atmosphere around the whole case that if michael had not cut this family off if michael had kept buying them things and kept acknowledging them and answering their calls and so on then this case would never have been taken to the da it was almost like um okay he's not giving us anything anymore so we're going to take something that was the attitude that you were getting and let's get to the my probably my favorite witness uh the mother <laughs> Yeah, the mother is. I mean, wow. She was. She was the one who was snapping at the. I think the foreman of the jury snapping wasn't he a fingers. Mexican man? Yeah, uh, Paul Rodriguez was the um, the foreman. He was a retired school principal. And at some point, she starts snapping her fingers at him, and she's like, "You know how our culture is," or something like that. Yeah, yeah, and that angered a lot of the jurors. A lot of the jurors really did not take to this lady. And some of it was to do with the evidence that was brought forward by the defense. So she takes the stand and what happens? So during the prosecution case, um, so with a prosecution witness, they come on the stand, the prosecutors have direct examination, they question the witness, then the defense cross-examines. So the prosecution bring the mother on for direct examination. And um, they can't control her. So every question they ask her, she goes off on some crazy tangent, ranting and raving. The Germans were conspiring against us, blah, blah, blah. The Germans. Um, yeah, she kept talking about the Germans. The Germans were trying to ruin us and all, all this stuff. I'm pretty sure if I remember right, um, Tom Thomas Mesereau, Michael's defense attorney, decided not to ever object during her testimony. Exactly. He said there were members of the defense team who were looking at him like, why are you not objecting to this woman's testimony? Because she's just going off on all these tangents. She's going beyond the scope of the questioning. He was like, this is fantastic because <laughs> she is revealing with every runaway tangent that she goes on. She is betraying her true colors. Yeah. She's telling us who she really is. She's a crazy person 
who just rants and raves about the craziest stuff. As you said earlier, she claimed at one point that she believed that she was going to be kidnapped in a hot air balloon. So then after this crazy direct examination, which just goes on and on because um, Mesereau decides not to object. And the prosecutor, Tom Snedden, one of the team, of pro- he's leading the team of prosecutors. He is seen with his head in his hands as this lady is testifying because it's such a disaster for the prosecution. <laughs> then comes the cross-examination. Buckle your seatbelt. Yeah, because I mentioned earlier that the family had been fundraising for the boy's cancer treatment. Well, it turns out they already had medical insurance. The whole thing was a scam. They'd scammed the local newspaper. There'd been a story in the local newspaper where they'd encouraged local people to donate money to help pay for his medical bills. They didn't need any of that money. Um, And then when they didn't earn enough out of it, they went back to the newspaper, complained and demanded a second story because they didn't think they'd made enough money. They had befriended George Lopez, uh, the chat show host and comedian, and then accused him of trying to steal their money and asked him to repay them the money that they said he'd stolen. Uh, They had befriended another comedian, a female comedian, and told them that they needed her to donate like $10,000 or something. And then they didn't spend it on what they said they would. They had befriended Chris Tucker. They had started asking him to give them his car, which he didn't appreciate. They had telephoned Jay Leno and got through to Jay Leno on the phone. And the boy was talking to Leno. And Leno could hear the mother in the background prompting Gavin Alviso as to what to say. And he was so freaked out by the whole thing and thought it was a scam that he told his producers, don't ever put that kid through to me again. Uh, he came and testified to that. I felt like Jay Leno was very unfair to Michael Jackson during the trial. And yeah. that's really surprising to me because Jay Leno himself thought this family was so whack that he had he wanted nothing to do with them. Yeah, that it was peculiar because he uh, made no bones about the fact that he thought Michael Jackson was guilty. He complained bitterly about having to go and testify. In the end, he did have to go to testify. He ended up, he got, he went in, he had to tell the truth, and the truth was damaging to the prosecution. And to be fair, he had Mesereau on, on his show sh- uh, shortly after the verdict, and it was quite amicable and a uh, fairly good interview. But he was, yeah, it was, uh, he, he claimed, it was interesting because it revealed that the jury was not sticking to the, uh, they'd been instructed not to watch any media at all about the case. But after he went to court, Jay Leno did a gag on his show that night where he said that he'd stolen the judge's gavel and he pulled out a gavel. And then the next morning, Judge Melville came into court and said, has anybody seen my gavel? And a lot of the jurors started laughing. So they obviously watched the show. So, yeah, they they had a history. They had been defrauding all of these people. And when they were friends with Chris Tucker, they'd uh, sort of asked him to take them to – the set of a rush hour movie. Yeah. And when they got there, they really were very poorly behaved. But anyway, all of this stuff about the conning money out of people and, and also the mother had um, been committing welfare fraud. And on top of all that, I can't believe I nearly forgot to mention this. They had a history of falsely accusing people of sexual abuse. So the, the mother had gone into a JC Penney store and been accused of shoplifting and the security guards had manhandled her. She decided to sue them and then at some late stage in the proceedings suddenly decided to add a claim that they'd sexually assaulted her and then had the uh, the two kids support her allegations and claim that they'd the two security guards 
while they were removing her from the store, has started tweaking her nipples. Yeah. <laughs> Got a massive payout from J.C. Penney and then didn't declare it to the government and then went on to welfare and kept all the money. So this was a, a family with a history of um, dubious accusations and with a history of trying to con people out of money. And so that all came to light during the cross-examination of the mother. So that was a real disaster. All of that came out in cross-examination then when Mesro was, ta- was asking her questions. Yeah, exactly. Didn't she get the kids to claim that their biological father had also been abusing them? Yeah, uh, when she was involved in custody and trying to get child support, she had the daughter, I believe, uh, say something to the effect that the dad had been sexually abusing her. And she also had the boys um, claim that he had been beating them, uh, which the dad absolutely refuted and said was uh, was made up by the mother. And also the lawyer in the J.C. Penney case came to court and was granted permission by the judge to breach attorney-client privilege and testified that the the sexual abuse accusations in the J.C. Penney case were not true and that they had been threatened that if they did reveal that it was not true, that Janet Arvizo was friends with the Mexican mafia and she would have them killed, or words to that effect. This woman sounds like she came across as just completely crackers. And I remember watching um, after the trial when jurors were talking about their experience, a lot of them referenced how they thought that this woman was completely untrustworthy and just completely out of her mind. Yeah, and that they felt that she had instilled poor values in her children and that she had coached them to lie on the stand. Right, and so therefore, you definitely can't believe there's a looming shadow of doubt here. So, is there anything else from the trial specifically that you think um, was an instrumental thing to discuss? Well, I think the most important thing is that, uh, as you've just said, after the family's testimony... There was a looming shadow of doubt. They had all been very poor witnesses, including the daughter, who we didn't even talk about. But they'd contradicted their own version of, of events. They contradicted each other's versions of events. And they had contradicted a lot of evidence as well. Plus, their characters had been very badly damaged by all the revelations about the other celebrities that they targeted and all of the revelations about the fake fundraising for medical bills and so on. Uh, so what the prosecution did was to try to shore up their case out of sort of desperation. They called a bunch of witnesses called 1108 prior bad acts witnesses. Real quick, I remember for people listening, there was some debate at the time about would the prosecution wanted to try and get people who claimed that they were victims of Michael Jackson before and in, mm-hmm. in to testify. And the defense was trying to block these people from coming in. And the judge ruled that it was admissible. Yeah. To some people who might think, well, that's suspicious. Why would the defense try and block those people from coming in? Can you speak to why that might be? Yeah. Well, because it's prejudicial. So um, not, there have been never been a successful prosecution of Michael Jackson. So what the prosecution is essentially asking permission to do is to bring into court a bunch of witnesses whose testimony is insufficient to convict Michael Jackson of any other charge but yet claim that their unreliable testimony is sufficient to shore up these allegations, which is frankly absurd. But actually, it seemed it ended up helping the defense, I think, because some of the people that they brought in were so outrageous. So 
it was kind of an act of desperation because some of these people were witnesses that they had rejected in the 1993 case. There was um, two former Neverland chefs called the Le Marks who had sold stories to tabloids in 93 and 94. And there was evidence that they had agreed to make their stories of alleged abuse that they'd witnessed increasingly graphic in return for increasingly large paychecks. And the uh, police had interviewed them at the time in 1993 and ruled that they were not credible. And yet suddenly they're calling them, the DA is calling them as witnesses in this case. Uh, the same was true of uh, a couple called the Quindoys, who'd worked at Neverland and said that they'd um, witnessed inappropriate behavior. They were undermined because uh, they'd actually given interviews in 1992, twice, after they left Neverland, in which they just said what a lovely man Michael Jackson was and how much they loved him. And then come 1993, they're suddenly charging money to um, accuse him of abuse. Uh, so they were interviewed at the time in 93, 94 by the police and again rejected as being not credible. Suddenly they're called to court to testify in the 2005 trial. And it was just like mudslinging. They were calling, they were um, calling all disgruntled ex-employees. There were some people called the Neverland Five who had been sacked from Neverland uh, for stealing and had all brought a class action suit for wrongful termination um, they had lost and ended up owing Michael Jackson money. Uh, they had um, claimed on TV and in tabloids in 94 and 93 that they had witnessed inappropriate behavior, but then admitted in their depositions in the trial that they hadn't and then had to come to court and claim that they had again and they were discredited. It was just this parade of totally unreliable perjurers who either had perjured themselves in previous cases or were perjuring themselves in this case seemingly because they were contradicting again their own versions of events each other's versions of events plus the evidence Snedden didn't seem to know what in the world he was doing in bringing these people in and another thing that i thought was weird was that when Snedden claimed that it was i forget if it was either him or zonin but one of the prosecutors claimed or i think they told the jury in the beginning that they were going to to somehow prove that Michael Jackson had abused Macaulay Culkin and all these people. Mm -hmm. And yeah. then when we got to the defense's case, the very first witness that they called to the stand was Wade Robson, I believe. Yeah, so this parade of 1108 witnesses, they all come in and claim to have seen Michael Jackson molesting various boys, including Brett Barnes, Wade Robson, and Macaulay Culkin. Uh, so when the prosecution rests, Mesereau is, uh, is in court at the end of the the last day of the prosecution case. And after everybody's filed out, Tom Snedden comes over and says, uh, so who are you going to call tomorrow? Who's your first witness is going to be? And Mesereau says, Wade Robson, Brett Barnes and Macaulay Culkin. And he said, Snedden looked like somebody had punched him in the stomach. He just went completely white as a ghost and sort of collapsed over the jury rail. Like, <laughs> what? He he said he just looked like he could not believe what Mesereau just said. <laughs> so, uh, so of course, he calls in Wade Robson, Brett Barnes, Macaulay Culkin, first three witnesses in, in the defense case, who completely demolished the 1108 evidence and come in and say, I absolutely was never touched. I resent the implication. I'm furious that the prosecution have said that this happened. And they were incredibly strong witnesses, and it just made the prosecution look ridiculous. The jury in particular, I remember, were talking about how much they enjoyed Macaulay Culkin's testimony. 
Oh, really? I, d- I don't remember that. I, I remember when they were asked on, I forget what shows it was, but I remember at least one person had commented that Macaulay Culkin came across as just like a very nice, well-thought-out guy. If he didn't understand something, he'd ask for clarification, and that they really, really paid attention to Macaulay Culkin when he testified. Yeah, it was embarrassing. It was embarrassing for the prosecutor, and during Wade Robson particularly, so the allegation, I believe, was that Wade Robson had been molested in a dance studio and had been molested in um, a jacuzzi or something. But Wade Robson is very strenuously denying all of these claims. And then the prosecutor who was uh, cross-examining him was Ron Zonin. And sort of out of desperation, he goes, well, what if Michael Jackson molested you when you were asleep? Then you wouldn't know about it, would you? <laughs> You know, your witnesses have never suggested that Wade Robson was molested in his sleep. You know, you're just clutching at straws now. I mean, you could say that to anyone. One quick thing on Wade Robson. So he has since come out since Michael's death and claimed that from the time he was 7 to 16, he was raped, right? Like this Mm -hmm. is, these are allegations above and beyond the worst that were even alleged um, in like the 2003 trial in 1993. If you're Michael Jackson and you've been raping a boy from the time he was 7 to 16 and you're in the trial of your life about child sex abuse, the very first person you're going to call to the stand when you know they're going to be asked, has Michael Jackson ever done X, Y, and Z to you, is this kid that you've raped from the time he was 7 to 16? That does not make any sense. And I can't figure out, Wade Ro- look, Wade Robson, he was either lying then or he's lying now. And he was asked very specific questions on the stand. He wasn't asked, were you molested? Because Wade's claiming, well, I didn't view it as molestation. I viewed it as... No, he wasn't asked, were you molested? He was asked, did this act happen to you? Did that act happen to you? So he was either lying then or he's lying now. And regardless, you can't believe anything this guy says, you know? Exactly. I mean, he was asked specifically, did Michael Jackson touch your penis? Did Michael Jackson touch your button? So when you're saying, oh, well, I didn't realize it was abuse. Well, that's not what you were asked. Yeah. And you perjured yourself. You've either perjured yourself then or you're lying now. It's one of the two. It wasn't, did Michael, did Michael Jackson abuse you by touching you here? It was, did Michael Jackson touch you here? No. Yeah. Did he ever touch? Yeah, exactly. And I spoke to the investigator in the case, Scott Ross, uh, who was the defense investigator. And he said, no witness takes the stand in that case unless I have interviewed them and I am confident that they're going to be good for us. And there were witnesses that I interviewed and I thought, this person's a bit kooky. We're not putting them on the stand or this person's a bit flaky. He said with Robson, he interviewed him at length and he was absolutely confident, 100% in putting this guy on the stand. He thought that he was going to be a fantastic solid witness and he totally does not believe the allegations that are being made now totally doesn't believe them and he's actually friends with wade robson's brother who's a private eye and he said you know that he he knows him through work and he's told him i don't believe anything your brother's saying i just do not believe it does his brother believe it i don't know i don't know i guess he's supporting his brother but i i don't know i know his sister's supporting him That'd be a tricky situation for sure. But yeah, I mean, Wade Robson dedicated, I think, a whole chapter in his book to how the only reason he is what he is today is because of Michael Jackson in terms of his success. Oh, for years after Michael Jackson died, he was totally team 
Michael Jackson. I mean, he um, he appeared in Janet's tribute at the the VMAs. Right, right. And he um, he wrote a chapter in the Michael Jackson opus where he says something like, "Michael Jackson is the most perfect human being I've ever met, and everything I aspire to be in life is based on what he was." Um, he even just literally weeks before he made his allegations applied for the job choreographing the Cirque du Soleil tribute show and didn't get the job and then started making the allegations. God, it's so sad. Basically, now we've come to the end of all the important stuff in the trial, right? Defense witness, prosecution witnesses. So now the jury goes into deliberation. Yeah, and the the media was absolutely predicting convictions yeah. um, right up to immediately before the verdicts came in. Um, and when the verdicts did come in, let's just say they, they didn't, they didn't really, there was not much pause for reflection. It was just fury. Yeah. It was just absolute fury. And immediately the mudslinging began. He got off because he's rich. He got off because he's celebrity. I mean, even the prosecution parroted that line is quite ridiculous because the prosecution's case was Michael Jackson was on the verge of bankruptcy. He was massively in debt. Therefore, he orchestrated um, with, he orchestrated the Bashir interview. Then he orchestrated the conspiracy to cover up the molestation because he was on the brink of financial ruin. And then Michael Jackson triumphs at trial, and they go, oh, "Well, it's only because he's so rich." You know, <laughs> this is like, what are you talking about? Is he on the brink of financial ruin, or is he massively wealthy? You can't have it both ways. He was tried in, I believe, it was in Santa Barbara, correct? Uh, yeah, he was tried in a, a small community in Santa Maria, Santa which Maria. I believe is part of Santa Barbara County. Yes, it is. Okay, so Santa Maria. This is a conservative part of California. I'm from California. Absolutely. You know? Everyone on the jury was either white or Hispanic, I believe. There was one alternate juror who was black, but he did not decide yeah. any of the verdicts. And the thing that irritated me about the reaction... That was one of the happiest days of my life. And the reason that was one of the happiest days of my life is because, again... I paid very close attention to the trial, and I believed very, very strongly that it was absolute bullshit. It could not be believed by a thinking person that Michael did what he was, what it was being alleged that he did. A thinking person could not believe that. And when they read the not guilty verdicts, I remember I was so happy. I watched it with my grandmother. She she called me, and I drove over to the house because they'd reached the verdict, and um, we watched together, and we were so, so happy. And my grandma had a lot of fun making fun of Nancy Grace afterwards. <laughs> but it was just so obvious. And I remember looking at all these people. So at first I was angry at the media during the trial, because I realized how dishonest they were. And then once the verdicts were reached, watching everyone in the media, all these talking heads, all these idiots respond to it, that was the first time in my life I remember thinking, I'm smarter than some people on TV in the news. Like, it just hit me, just that realization. I was like, because I cared about the truth. I, 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 this is not surprising. And they all looked, more than anything, they looked so incredibly foolish and stupid. All of them. Yeah, I agree. I mean, it just demonstrates the sort of inanity of talking heads. You know, Tom Mesereau gave various interviews and he said he would watch the TV very, very infrequently during the trial because he was busy working on the defense. But when he did switch it on, he would be apoplectic sometimes because he would see people that had not been in the courtroom analyzing his performance 
as a as a lawyer. And of course, this trial was not televised. So they really didn't know what they were talking about. They were analysing his performance in the courtroom based on media reports, which in themselves were usually inaccurate, even if only by omission. Yeah. Um, you know, he said that these people know nothing. These people don't know what they're talking about. These people are sat in TV studios. They're nowhere near the courthouse and they're analysing a trial that they're not even watching. And these are the people who are setting the agenda. These are the people who are determining the general public's opinion on guilt or innocence in a case of this gravity. They don't know what they're talking about. And it was shocking. I mean, I remember being in the UK. There's a, a, a chat show that used to be on called Richard and Judy. It was um, a husband and wife TV presenting couple. Then they would be on TV for an hour nightly live um, on Channel 4. And they would do quizzes and news discussions and all that kind of stuff. And they would periodically have panels of British journalists sitting in the studio saying, what do you think of this week's developments in the trial? And you go, these people don't know anything. They weren't there. Yeah. You know, you can't analyze a trial based on what you've read in a newspaper. Every day in that trial, there would have been five, six hours of testimony. What they were doing, they were judging Michael Jackson and the mythology surrounding him and kids. That was the filter through which they took in what was happening at the trial, which made it impossible. They went in with so many presuppositions. It was even the press that were in the courtroom were massively biased. So J. Randy Tarabarelli told a story that when they were in the queue to get their media credentials at the beginning of the trial, there was a, a journalist there from a kind of a, an upper class magazine, a hoity-toity magazine, a female journalist. And she was absolutely indignant about the fact that she was having to stand in a line and wait for her press credentials. And all of a sudden, she just went, for goodness sake, does anybody in this line actually believe he's innocent except J. Randy Tarabarelli? She just had this massive outburst in front of everyone. And he said it was just horrible. You were surrounded by people who went into the trial from the very beginning, wanting him to be guilty and convinced that he was guilty and totally unreceptive to hearing any evidence to the contrary. And that was what Linda Deutsch said as well. She said it was the worst trial she covered in a career spanning about five decades of court reporting. She said she, it was like being surrounded by idiots and bullies. No, that's exactly what it was. It was idiots and bullies. The comments that they were making about him on TV, it was, it was the most biased coverage collectively by everyone that I've ever seen. I mean, if there was nothing that, that no news, I, I mean, news stations are always, you know, there's the left, there's the right, there's the, everyone, at least in America, was propagating the idea that he had to have done it, that he had to have been guilty. I want to ask you about something here. Um, mm -hmm. There were some tapes that came out that it appeared that Aaron Carter did not know he was being recorded. Now, Aaron Carter has always defended Michael Jackson. He speaks highly of him to this day. He doesn't believe that he did anything criminal. But it's some stuff that has always bothered me that Aaron Carter says on these tapes. And he talks about that Michael wanted him to sleep in his room one night when Aaron Carter was hanging out at Neverland. Aaron, Aaron was like 15 at this time. So they get a cot and everything, and it's like five in the morning, and Aaron Carter wakes up, and Michael Jackson's like sitting at the foot of his bed. And it's kind of hard to hear the rest of the conversation 
And in one of the videotapes I saw, like the camera angle was angled so that it looked like it was maybe in a bag on the floor, kind of like looking up mm. at him. I remember that. It was um, the journalist was called Daphne Barak, the uh, the lady who recorded it. Yeah, yeah, I think it was a blonde. She's blonde, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He never says anything criminal happened, but he talks about how there is weird stuff. And he talks about how Michael would drink in front of him sometimes. And I don't recall with 100% precision if Aaron had said that Michael had given him alcohol. I don't Do you remember hearing that? No, I don't. I'm hazy on it, but I remember I remember that, that it happened. I remember the lady was called Daphne Barak and she went through a phase of publishing these sort of dubious interviews with people connected to Michael Jackson, which caused a lot of controversy. Another one was with his, um, his former nanny, Grace Rwamba. So the Aaron Carter stuff, first of all, ever since I heard it, I believed Aaron Carter 100%. And again, to be clear, Aaron Carter's not saying that anything criminal happened. He's not. He's just saying that it was just a weird thing. Just like he wakes up at five in the morning and there's Michael at the foot of his bed. And I don't know if he wants to start the day or what, what exactly, where they're going from there. It's a, it's a short clip. But whatever was going on in Michael's head, I'm convinced that in 2003, that he was innocent, just as you've said you are, both on this podcast and the prior one. The case was such a joke. 1993 makes me slightly nervous. I think part of it is just not knowing. There's certain things that we're not clear on, like when he was staying at Jordan's house, where was he sleeping? It would really bother me if I knew for sure that he, they were sleeping in Jordan's bed. And it would, you know, why would they, why would the adults allow that to happen? Why would Michael want to do that? There's basically two schools of thought here. One, Michael wanted to be so close to these kids and stuff because he had a sexual interest in them. I'm open to that, except there's no evidence for it. There's nothing convincing. There's no credible witnesses. Everyone's perjured themselves 10 ways till Sunday. I mean, there's not a shred of evidence to suggest that that is the case, is the thing. I understand it looks bad. The other option, clearly he had some mental issues stemming from childhood and wanting to be a kid. I just, for me, I just keep wondering and just thinking like, I wonder if his growth was so stunted and he really was stuck trying to constantly live out this childhood. Then everyone looks at this guy and he, he appears so freakish to so many people that they just assume, well, of course he's doing sinister things with kids because they can't relate to him. And they think, well, if I was sleeping in bed with kids, that's the only reason I'd be doing it. Maybe who knows? <clears throat> What's the best explanation you have? You know, I'm never going to say I know either way what his interest was in children because, you know, nobody can claim to know that. Oh, are you saying that you don't know for sure that it wasn't sexual? No, no. I'm Well, I'm not saying I believe it was, but right. I say I'm not I'm not the kind of person who's going to put myself out there and say I know because I, I don't do that because I'm a, a journalist. I operate on a evidential basis right. and there is no way I can claim to demonstrate either way and I've never claimed to know either way although I do say that in um, each of the cases which was brought there has been significant doubt not just reasonable doubt but significant doubt and you know the last podcast we did was all about the burden of proof and reasonable doubt and the presumption of and, innocence and the presumption of innocence. And I believe in that totally, totally believe in that. And I think it's the most important tenet of a civilized society, really. And 
there is no way, there is no way you would get me to convict Michael Jackson on any case that's been brought either to court or not to court, but any allegation that's been brought, because there has never been a victim who's come forward and said, Michael Jackson did this to me. They just went to the police. They didn't try to get money. And their story was consistent and credible. It's just never happened. Right. And you have to ask, if Michael Jackson was this serial predator of children, where is the credible victim? Where is the victim who comes forward and says, I'm not interested in suing. I'm not interested in talking to the media. All I want to do is talk to the police and go to court, get a conviction. Where is that victim? Where are their parents? They don't exist, it seems. They've never come forward. Even Wade Robson now has filed lawsuits against 50 different companies associated with Michael Jackson, seeking individual payouts from all of them. It's all about money. You know, to me, it's clear that Michael Jackson had an unhealthy obsession with children, not necessarily an unhealthy sexual obsession with children, but an unhealthy obsession with children and childhood. And when he died in his bedroom, Hornby Hills, I think, was where he was living at the time in North Carrollwood Drive. Even when he died, still recovering from the trauma of the 2005 trial, they found notes dotted all around his bedroom that said things like, children are sweet, children are innocent. And you're going, Michael, the, a child or a group of children and their parents just almost destroyed your life. You know, the reason you're having to do this comeback tour is because you're basically got no earning potential. The only way you can earn any money is through live performance. And your whole life has hit the skids, you know, and it's all because of kids. It's all because of his obsession with kids. And it's all because of kids that have been nefarious. You know, and he still was convinced children are sweet, children are innocent. And it was ju it's just clearly not rational. It's irrational behavior, you know? Yeah, to make a blanket statement, some kids are sweet and some kids are innocent. And some kids are that way until their father gets them to concoct stories after administering sodium amytal to them. So it's like... It's, yeah, it's like a, a pathological obsession. Like he's got this weird idea that childhood is the ultimate goal and children are brilliant and their lives are brilliant and I wish I was a child. In spite of the fact that his whole adult life, he's just been fucked over by children. This is a man who's not very familiar, who wasn't very familiar with reality, right? All he knew pretty much was what was inside the gates of Neverland. And whenever he would portray children in his music videos or on stage, he has a girl Literally, it's a sweet sentiment, but when he performed Earth Song on stage on the history tour, he'd have a girl, a little girl, walk up to this soldier and hand him like a daffodil, and the soldier would start crying and just put down his gun. And yeah. if you think about how absurd that idea is, I mean, that is so, f I mean, it's, an, I get, now most people would be like, oh, that's such a sweetheart, but no, but then you stop and think, oh no, I think Michael really thinks that that could happen. Like Michael really yeah. thinks that that like it's not a joke, it's not hyperbole, you know. It's not it's not just an artistic choice. Like Michael really thinks, let's send an army of kids out onto the battlefield with daffodils and just end all the wars. Like part of me thinks yeah. that he really, really thought that that could happen. However, he was viewing kids. It's almost like he did, and I think that's why a lot of 
kids around Neverland when it was in art and stuff. I mean, where, why there were cherubs everywhere. I mean, in Michael's mind, was there really a difference between kids and cherubs? Yeah, he clearly idealized children and idealized childhood in a way that was not rational. You sort of despair a bit because you think if he had continued, say he hadn't died in June 2009, if he continued with that mindset, how long would it have been before he put himself back in the same vulnerable position? You know, because it was like, it was very frustrating because it was like he didn't learn from his mistakes. It was almost like painting a target on your forehead and then handing someone a loaded gun. You know, he just left himself exposed constantly. We didn't see him walking around with kids after the trial, though, did we? He, uh, We saw him hanging around with kids in London in uh, 2009 after he announced the concerts, but I believe they were his godchildren. Thank um, goodness. It was um, Mark Lester's kids. Because I remember there was a lot of fans that were pissed off because he came, he went to see the musical Oliver uh, in London, uh, stage musical, and then he came back to his hotel and he got out of his car and some kids got out of the car with him and there were some fans there like, oh, for fuck's sake, you know, like, what are you doing? You know, <laughs> and it was like for a minute, everyone was going, Jesus, what are you doing? And then it turned out it was uh, Mark Lester's kids and Mark Lester was there with him. But, you know, for a moment, it was like, what are you doing? Michael. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, it's... um. What's the what's that old saying? You know, fool me once, shame on you, and fool me twice, shame on me. You know, well, it had already been fooled twice. Right. He, you know, the Arvizos were strike two. What would have happened if he'd ended up in another courtroom? You know, this it was it didn't bear thinking about, and he really it was very frustrating to watch him emerge from the trauma of of that trial and just think, is he going to learn? Is he going to learn? And Tom Mesero told him, he said. Michael, you cannot ever do this again. You cannot ever hang around with children again, particularly not in California, because Tom Sneddon will come for you. What did Michael say? I don't know. I don't know what he said. I don't know if Tom Mesero has ever said. I don't know if he can say. I don't know. Maybe it's attorney-client privilege. But he did say publicly that he had told Michael this can never happen again because they will come for you. Somebody will come for you. You can answer this however you want, but um, basically, I want to ask you, first of all, those tapes that came out, with, and I'll go through this 93 and then the trial, the tapes that came out with Aaron Carter, I totally believe <laughs> what Aaron Carter said in those tapes, weird behavior, but nothing criminal. Um, what was your take? How, did, did you believe it? Did you not believe it? I, I just, it's difficult for me to comment because I don't really remember the tape. I remember that it happened, but I don't remember the content. But as I say, it's clear to me that Michael had a pathological obsession with children and childhood and that his, it was, it was an unhealthy obsession with childhood that clearly had a very detrimental impact on his life over the years. So it wouldn't surprise me, but as you say, Carter's not saying that he was abused or anything. No, Aaron loves was him. at the foot of his bed. And that's kind of, you know, would it surprise me to learn that Michael Jackson sat and watched children sleeping and probably sat and said to himself, wow, I love children. Look how beautiful children look when they're sleeping. Which, <laughs> you know, that's going to sound so creepy to certain people. But yeah. again, given oh, that absolutely. it's Michael Jackson, you know, when when the whole trial was going on, I thought to myself, 
probably the best person who has the best chance at beating these allegations is Michael Jackson. Just because, again, it's not like he tried to make any of this a secret. He was proud of it. It was like, it was like, he, he, he literally said at one point when he was asked about sleeping in bed with kids, it's what the whole world should do. That's it. Yeah, that's exactly what he said. It's what the whole world should Everyone do. Everyone should just go out and find kids and start having sleepovers. Yeah. And I, that's, I, he was sincere in that. And if you're a serial child sex abuser, first of all, you're not going to take a break for 10 years before you reoffend uh, and, <laughs> and reoffend when the issue was white hot about the very kid you're going to start reoffending with. And second, yeah. you're not going to advertise it. Um, 2003, I'm, I'm beyond convinced that he was not guilty. Your take on 2003, same or not? 2003, the case was an absolute dud, and it should never have been brought to court, and the doubt was monumental. I mean, it's lunacy that that case even came to court, Mm. and I have no problems in saying he was absolutely entitled to his not guilty verdicts on every single count in that case. And anybody who's well-versed in the evidence, they, they would be a fool to suggest otherwise. Okay, yeah, so we're in complete agreement 2003. To me, 93 bothered me the most, but I still, there's no evidence. With 1993, the number one thing that, I feel like there's nothing there, because there is nothing there. But I'm, I I don't know what to make of 93. What do you make of 93? 93 is not the slam dunk, not guilty, that you got from the Arvizos, but... Is that only because it didn't go to trial? That's what I was going to say. It never got contested in a court. So... All the stuff that we found out about the Arvizos in terms of the welfare fraud, the scamming of other people, etc., that all came out at trial. We don't know what we would have found out about the Chandlers, or the Charmatsons, as they're originally called, had it gone to trial. But the doubt is monumental, again, for me. You have a kid who says he's not molested, then he says he is molested, then when he says he is molested, he can't describe the genitals. Then they raid the ranch. They can't find anything that's incriminating. Two grand juries can't form an indictment, even though they could indict a ham sandwich, as the old saying goes. You've got the dad on tape saying he has no idea if the allegations are true, and he's asked Michael for a lot of money. It, you know, there's no way you could convict. What do you make of the fact that Jordy would not testify against Michael Jackson in 2003? I mean, of course, you could say, well, he just must have not wanted the publicity and whatever. But you've got to keep in mind the fact that he did legally emancipate himself from the parents, that the witnesses were lined up to come to court and say, he told me it never happened and he hated his parents. So do you think we'll ever hear from him? I doubt it. I really, really doubt it. You know who I have a lot of sympathy for? I, I actually... Of course, I have sympathy for Michael Jackson. He's dead now, obviously, but when he was alive, because I felt he was unjustly put through hell. But I have the the most tragic person when I think of all this is Jordy Chandler. Like, I have some degree of sympathy, and I feel bad for him, because he was a kid when he went through all this. And especially knowing that he cut off contact with his parents and, and his own father, you know, he accused of just brutally beating him and trying to kill him. Um, was the allegation correct? Yeah, try trying to beat him with a dumbbell. Try to beat him with a dumbbell. I feel really bad for Jordy Chandler. I mean, his life was ruined in a lot of ways, you know. My sympathy is limited because he's had ample opportunity and time now to come forward and tell his story if he wanted to. He's and, probably um, terrified of being killed. I mean, can you? Well, imagine? that's that's 
that's possibly true. I mean, I once met a Michael Jackson fan. Uh, it was ahead of the Conrad Murray trial. I was in London, and it was before Murray had even been um, charged, I believe. And we were just talking. You know, I'd never met this fan before, but um, they knew somebody that I was with. They just said very matter-of-factly, we were talking about the doctor, and they said, well, you know, if he's not charged, I'm going to kill him anyway. I was like, what? They said, yeah. <laughs> it's just like so matter of fact. It's incredible. I think, yeah, I'm sure a lot of that was talk. Otherwise, someone would have got Snedden a long time ago. Um, yeah. And, and I and they tried, apparently. Snedden, they tried. I don't know. But Snedden talked to Diane Diamond, I think, in an interview. And she asked him about, was he pursuing Michael cause, j- just because or an axe to grind or something? And he said that he's had to have police like teams suddenly run through his house and secure the premises and blah 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 wow yeah well tom snedden i think is the most disgraceful character possibly in all of this i mean he was uh, he clearly didn't know what he was doing well i think he i believe that he believed that michael was guilty i don't believe that, that he was this guy who set out to destroy an innocent man he was known as mad dog but he was so lazy. He didn't even look into, I mean, why in the world? He never should have looked like he had been punched in the gut and leaning over the guardrail when he found out who Mesero was going to call on the first day of defense testimony, had he done due yeah. diligence. He should have um, investigated the Alvizos more thoroughly. It was stupid to bring that case based on the Alvizos story, I believe. But do I believe he believed Michael was guilty? Yes. That doesn't excuse his behavior. Some of his behavior was illegal, and he should have been removed from office. And Michael, in my opinion, should have brought a, a wrongful, uh, you know, malicious prosecution case. But um, maybe he was better off just getting out of there and never having to see him or deal with him again. But, it, you know, it was um, outrageous, the second case. Absolutely outrageous. Last question I want to ask you. Just being totally honest, your own personal feelings. To what degree, if any degree, like 0% chance to 100% chance that Michael had some type of sinister or sexual fixation with children? What do you think? No, I'm I'm not convinced of that. I'm the kind of person that if you're going to tell me that, you need to give me some evidence. And if I look at each allegation that was made on its own merits, each one falls down. Each one is undermined by lies and contradictions and ulterior motives so you'd say zero percent i mean i wouldn't i wouldn't say the zero percent because of course there's a there's a chance that anyone okay is fair enough you know because say, say for instance um you know i mean i'm in court all the time right for my job and you get people in there for child abuse charges they're teachers they're scout leaders they're priests you know people that Every day, people entrust the care of their children to these people, mm. and they have no idea that this person is a predator. So, of course, there's a chance that Michael is a predator in the sense that there's a chance that the guy over the road is a predator. But have I ever seen anything to tell me that Michael is more of a threat or perhaps more likely to be a predator than Bob down the street? Then, no, I don't think you can take the allegations that were made about him as being indicative of there being any particular threat because they all fell down. And you, if, the, if they don't stand up on their own, then you can't take them as a collective either. Every election, 
This will make some people go nuts, but just to ensure that I'm keeping an open mind every election, I try and convince myself for a few days that it might really be better to vote for the other person. I did it in my first election in 2008. For a few days, I really tried to see all the good McCain voted for Obama. I did the same thing with Romney in 2012, voted for Obama again. There was a period, it was it was less, admittedly, it was maybe closer to a day or two where I really tried to think hard about what good could come if Trump was president. I voted for Hillary. So there's been times when I've really tried to think about everything very carefully with Michael and think, okay, where is it that leads me to it's more likely he did it? And there's there's just nothing, just honestly, there's just, there really is nothing that convinces me or even points to any guilt that I've ever come across or been able to find. So... Well, you you could make a circumstantial case, right? You could go, well, he hangs around with kids. He admits sharing his bed with kids. There's been allegations, right? But when you get into the nitty gritty, when you get the devil is in the detail. Yeah. And when you get into the detail, there just is nothing. There's nothing. Everything can be mitigated. The one thing he was guilty of was really, really bad judgment. He made a very poor judgment to indulge that obsession after 93. You can kind of excuse it before 93 as living in a bubble. But after 93, it was reckless and dangerous and crazy and um, indefensible, really. Absolutely. I'm with you 100%. This has been a really fascinating podcast, and I can't thank you enough. Um, the, Michael Jackson was someone who, you know, you talk about people who captivate a generation or a society. He literally captivated the world and still does. And part of the, you know, the saddest part of his life was these allegations. I mean, the thing he loved most, very sincerely, is kind of the thing that took him out in a way. And um, it's too bad. You know, we've been talking a lot about the trial. I think you, I think it's fair to say that you, outside of Thomas Mesereau or someone who was directly involved in the court proceedings, you out of everyone on earth probably knows the most about the Michael Jackson trial. Now, don't be modest. Is that a fair statement? I would say there's probably people that know more. You know, for instance, people that were in the courtroom every day. But Certainly, I've spent a lot of time researching and writing about these cases, and I do know them very well. But I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be so bold as to say that I know more than anyone else. So I don't think that's probably true. Well, I've read a lot over the years from a lot of people who are in the court and and yourself, and you just you know it front and back. Like out of all the conversations I've had, I've always thought, man, like you. <laughs> Charlie really knows this case. I just think that it's so great to be able to talk to you about this because it was fascinating for me personally learning that, that was, again, that was my awakening to how wildly dishonest the media could be. So I'd really like to thank you again for, for the first time, I guess you've ever done it, but gone through from the beginning of the allegations up through the end. And uh, yeah, I'd like to thank you very much. Is there anything else you want to talk about before we end the podcast? No, not really. I mean, to be honest, we've barely skimmed the surface. That's I know. <laughs> That's what <laughs> I was so just thinking. There's so many witnesses and stuff, but, you know, it's um, <laughs> it's been fun and uh, appreciate the opportunity and it's always great to speak to you. Yeah, it's always great to speak to you too. And the number one thing that I really want people to keep in mind, again, last time I spoke with Charlie, you have to have reasons that make sense and that are 
logical for your beliefs. And so if you believe that Michael Jackson did it, you should really be able to point to some evidence. And when I say evidence, I don't mean a clip of Bill O'Reilly screaming about how he must be guilty because he's had too many nose jobs. I mean actual evidence. And there is none that either I or Charlie's been able to find. So, you know, I don't know what else to say, but um, in my book, until I'm shown otherwise, it will always be a really tragic thing that happened to him that never should have happened. So that that he helped bring on himself. But anyway. Yeah. Well, I am on Twitter at ReasonBound. And where should people uh, go if they would like to contact you and ask you a ton of questions? Oh, God. <laughs> um, my Twitter is at C.E. Thompson. Thompson spelled T-H-O-M-S-O-N. And my website is www.charles-thompson.net. People should really check out your website. In particular, um, there's the portfolio section. Then you click on features, and there's so many great articles there. I remember the first time I read The Night James Brown Saved Boston. That's on there. Um, some really great articles that you've written that I hope people check out. So thank you very much, and I'm sure we'll talk again in the near future. Great. Thank you.